Cubs world in sports. Be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. All right? Play hard, but stay poised. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop. anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord.
and welcome to Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Namaste. Wassalamu alaikum. Que pasa? Konnichiwa. What's happening? What's going on? Que pasa, mi amigos? Bonjour. Bonsoir. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World in Sports. I hope everybody's doing great. I hope everybody's doing wonderful. I hope everybody's doing what they need to do to make this world, to make this community, to make this planet a better place to be by listening and learning and loving and harmonizing and growing and unifying with each other regardless of race regardless of gender regardless of sexual orientation regardless of political affiliation whatever it is put it all to the side especially on this day to go ahead and say what can we do to make this world to make this space to make this society a better place to be started the program off of course with the great Martin Luther King Jr. I know that on the third Monday of every January, we go ahead and we celebrate Martin Luther King, uh, Martin Luther King Day for many people. When I say celebrate means that they just, you know, are happy that they don't have to go to school or take the day off. But his actual birthday is today in which I'm recording this, January 15th. So one of the greatest human beings who's ever walked the earth. I just want to give a special dedication. I just want to give a shout out to the great, the honorable, the legendary, the one and only Martin Luther King Jr. So hopefully many people recognize that. Hopefully many people are aware of that and are doing what they need to do to honor his name and to honor what he lived and what he sacrificed and what he died for. So throughout, it's going to be kind of a gospel feel today in terms of my music. So I've got Aretha Franklin lined up. I've got uh, Reverend James Cleveland lined up. I've got them all lined up, baby. I'm ready to rip, roar, and ready to go. So it's all about that on the podcast today as far as the music is concerned. Concerning my tone, concerning the attitude, in terms of the space that I'm in. It's all about celebration of one of the greatest people who ever lived, Dr. Martin Luther King, on the, on the day that he was born back in 1929. So, which means it would mean, what, he'd be, what, 89, 90 years old, something like that today? 91, somewhere around there? So, yeah, there we go. Special dedications to the great one, to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. All right, on the program today, on the podcast today, man, 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 I'm not really going to get into much about the NFL playoffs because on my last podcast, I talked about the situation with uh, Tampa Bay and New Orleans. I talked about Buffalo and Baltimore. I talked about the Rams and Green Bay. I talked about those games and got into them and what they needed to do. So I didn't want to really dedicate too much space to basically, you know, repeat what I said. Uh, the last podcast that I did, Cleveland going to Kansas City, the defending champions. So all of that stuff, if you want to get a breakdown and talk about, um, get my thoughts and feelings about that, you can go to my, my last podcast. But... Um, I basically want to get back into the love of my life, get back to my Halle Berry, get back to my Layla Roshan, get back to my, uh, get back to my um, Monica Bellucci, shall we say, in terms of my love of sports. I'm going to talk about the NBA. I'm going to talk about this James Harden situation. Ah, oh, finally, <laughs> finally over. Good Lord, have mercy. The James Harden trade watch is finally over. Now maybe that man can get back into shape and play some basketball. The Houston Rockets, as I mentioned before, I mentioned this when I was doing my podcast a couple of days ago, the details or the, the news first hit that Harden had been traded. So the Rockets sent James Harden to the uh, to the Nets in a blockbuster 14 trade that involved the Pacers, that involved the Cleveland Cavaliers, the Indiana Pacers, the Cleveland Cavaliers, along with, of course, Houston and Brooklyn. Now, in the 14 deal, this is what happens to the Nets. 
Brooklyn gets James Harden, a 2024 second round pick. That's from the Cavaliers. The players for the Rockets, what they get is Victor Oladipo. He was with the Pacers. Dante Exum with the Cavaliers. And then some scrub who name I can't pronounce from the New York, from the uh, Brooklyn Nets. Picks from the Nets to the Rockets are. Now, this is the, uh, this is the candy right here. This is a sweetener right here. Brooklyn gave up three unprotected first round draft picks in 2022, 2024, 2026. And in the deal, plus they have pick swaps. In 2021, 2023, 2025, and 2027. So basically, which, which what that means is that if the Rockets feel that uh, the Nets draft pick is better than theirs in 2021, 23, 25, and 27, they can say, you know what, we'll be uh, swaps. We'll, we'll be switching. We'll be taking your draft position while you take our draft position. So that's pretty good. Also in the deal, the Rockets get Milwaukee's 2022 first round pick. That's from Cleveland. And the Pacers, they get Karis LeVert, who was traded first to the Rockets. Then they traded uh, LeVert to the uh, Indiana Pacers. Then the Pacers also get themselves a second-round pick in 2023, and that's also from the Rockets. So, all right, so does everybody get this here? Is everybody kosher with that? Everybody understand? You want me to run through that again? Listen up, pay attention. Basically, the stars of this trade, Brooklyn, they get James Harden. The Rockets get a bunch of draft picks and Victor Oladipo. The Pacers get themselves Karis LeVert, and the Cavaliers get themselves Jared Allen and Torian Prince. So there we go. All right. So if you take a look at it, Houston got almost everything they wanted in the trade because before they were talking about, look, we need a bevy load of picks and we need a young star. If not that, we're not going to be doing anything. In fact, I remember there were reports out of the New York Post and the uh, other papers in New York talking about the Rockets and then nets in negotiations and trade talks and they were like well you know we're speaking about trading james harden here we're speaking about a guy who wasn't too long ago the mvp of the league we're talking about a guy who's a multiple time scoring champ we're talking about a guy at 31 years old is still in his prime in terms of the impact that he can have and you know our asking price so brooklyn what's it going to be along with these picks are you going to give us kevin durant or are you going to give us kyrie irving now i want hello Hello, Sean. Hello. Did he? Are they in a bad cell? Did they just hang up on us when I said that I either need to have that we either need to have Durant or Kyrie Irving? Because I'm hearing the Delta. What's going on? So basically, that that was it in terms of that's what I thought. Where it was kind of like, well, this kind of clears the way, right, for the for the Rockets to go ahead and trade Harden to Philadelphia because Philadelphia had everything that the Houston Rockets were looking for. And when we're speaking about the young trade or the young player to build the team around, the 76ers were definitely in the, hey, you know what? If we need to go ahead and give up um, Ben Simmons, we can go ahead and do that. According to reports from uh, Sham Serenia of The Athletic, the Philadelphia 76ers were one of the favorites. It came down to the Nets and it came down to the 76ers. They offered... Uh, uh, Simmons along with Matisse Thibel and also a couple of unknown amount of draft picks which it makes no difference now because the deal has already been done but it was multiple draft picks it was Matisse Thibel it was also uh, two-time all-star Ben Simmons that were on the table and whether you believe the reports that 
uh, the uh, Fertitta was so upset. The owner of the Rockets, Lorenzo, not, what the, um, one of the Fertitta uh, uh, fellas, he was so upset the fact that uh, what Daryl Morey did in terms of quitting on the Rockets and then talking about, yeah, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be in the NBA in terms of the general manager role anymore. I'm going to take some time to be with my family and reconnect with them. So I'm going to take some time off and I'm burnt out. And then seven days later, he's up there being the new GM of the Philadelphia 76ers. And then Vertita's like, say what? Or maybe he was still a little bit sore. And I don't blame him. Maybe he was still a little bit sore about that Tokyo we're with you or Japan we're with you tweet. That cost the Rockets in the NBA a boatload of money. Whatever it was, uh, Fertitta, Tillman Fertitta, that's right, that, that, the owner of the Rockets. Tillman Fertitta was like, no, nah, we're not doing this. I don't give a damn. He could he could give us Joel Embiid. He could give us Ben Simmons. And he could give us, I don't know, the son of Andrew Tony. We're not, we're not doing anything. We're not going to be doing anything with that guy. Because I'm the Rockets. I'm thinking to myself, if it came down between what the Brooklyn Nets were offering and what the Philadelphia 76ers were offering, you throw Ben Simmons on the table and Matisse Thibel, who can play some defense. Now, all of a sudden, we're speaking. Now, all of a sudden, Philadelphia takes that lead in terms of uh, acquiring James Harden or for us trading James Harden to that team. But look, I think that, I think that Brooklyn got about 75 cents, 80 cents on the dollar. For what they got with James Harden. So I think it was a fair deal. I think Raphael Stone, the GM of the of the Houston Rockets, he did a great deal. He did a good job under the circumstances that were given to him. Now, Mark Stein of the New York Times, he reported that the Sixers had two ways to improve their offer. When they were speaking about improving uh, about the trade with James Harden, either they were going to offer more picks and pick swaps, or the other one was to involve first-year uh, first year, first round draft pick, Tyrese Maxey. Maybe that would have sweetened the deal a little bit more. But then again, the 76ers said no. They were willing to offer Simmons, but not Maxey. Once again, it was the 21st overall pick in the 2020 NBA draft. So that's what Stein reported. But there's a new report coming out that Fertitta was like, no, I once again, I don't give a damn. I'm not going to be working. I'm not going to be doing anything with um, Daryl Morey. Which, if that's the case, then that's, uh, you know, that's, that's being derelict to your duties as an owner. And if I were the Houston Rockets fan base, I'd be kind of pissed off. Well, yes, we got a pretty good deal. But if you're telling me that you didn't want to do a deal which included Ben Simmons just because you were mad at Daryl Morey, what the fuck are you doing, man? So, again, if you read one report by Mark Stein, who's very good, Mark Stein, Mark Stein, he's talking about it was Tyrese Maxey. The unwillingness for the 76ers to give up on Maxi, which killed the deal. Other reports were saying, no, it wouldn't have made a difference. So who knows, who knows, who knows? And according to Joe Varden of The Athletic, Brian Windhorst and Mark Spears of ESPN, because now we're speaking about, well, it's been out there, it's pretty public that the 76ers have Ben Simmons on the trade block. And since the trade didn't happen, what are the, what is the relationship between the organization, the coach, and Ben Simmons? I mean, how do you go back to Simmons? It's like, all right, give us all, give us your all, please, when you were actively looking to trade me. When if it wasn't for, I don't know, hostilities between the GM and the owner of the other team or Tyrese Maxey or whatever, but basically you were willing to give me away. Now you want me to come back and be like, yeah, I bleed 76 in red, white, and blue. Go fuck you. So... That was maybe the next storyline that we could talk about. How is the trade that didn't go through going to affect the 76ers? But 
hey, it seems like according to Spears, Windhorse, and uh, Ver- uh, Varden of the Athletic that Simmons is happy not to be traded. He did. He wanted to stay in Philadelphia. So there you go. Looks like that uh, potential mountain will be nothing more than a molehill. So Simmons is happy to be in Philadelphia where he wanted to stay all along. I guess there's going to be no hard feelings. Moving forward, we'll find out uh, going in the future. Also, it's a situation where, hey, Doc Rivers is going to have to do his thing in terms of being that guy who connects with the player to, again, assuage some of the ego of Ben Simmons. It's not like, oh, yeah, these fucking frail, mentally frail basketball players. Hey, man, if that was a situation... I think a lot of us would be like, damn, well, I mean, you know, could y'all like kiss my ass for this? Can y'all tell me how great I am? Could y'all at least kind of bullshit me with the, hey, you know, the fact that you're being wanted shows you how great you are. I mean, can we, can you do something for, I, I, I deserve that at least, at the very least. Just don't be like, yeah, we tried to trade you and you didn't. So go ahead and suit up and play and, you know, keep your mouth shut and shut up and dribble. So I, 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 hopefully Doc and Daryl and those guys are going to be doing some, um, some, some nice ego stroking for Ben Simmons to uh, keep him going. Maybe give him a little bit more perks in the locker room or or something. I don't know. Give the man another car. I don't know. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Hey, man, let me tell you something. If I had a female that I was dating and all of a sudden my female or my the female that I was in a relationship with was interested in another guy and the guy was like, no thanks, and she came back to me, I was like, yeah, you know, guess what? For the next week or so, your legs are going to be spread morning, noon, and night. And maybe sometimes after lunch to kind of get back in my good graces. Shoot, you're going to be up there talking about, you know, you, I, Wendell, I love you. And we're going to, we're going to be together and this, that, and the other. And all the, all the time that you're saying this to me or the short period of time that, you know, you're saying this to me, you're out there trying to court some other guy. And when the guy's like, yeah, you know what? I'm married. I'm not going to leave my wife and kids for you or any situation. And you come back to me and it's like, well, yeah, I was looking to leave you, but since he's not really interested or everything fell through and I have to come back to you, I um, I think you're great and you're funny and your podcasts are wonderful. <laughs> I'll be like, nah, sweetheart, you got to give me a little bit more than that. In fact, you got to give me a lot more than that. So, uh, yeah, put on, the non- put on the lingerie, put on a little Marvin Gaye, get in the bedroom, and let's go! Let's get it on. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So basically, as far as stroking the ego for Ben Simmons, Daryl Morey, and Doc Rivers, they're going to have to get it on with Ben Simmons. <laughs> so let me tell you something. Man. How do the trades look now? Let's talk about these trades, all right? So let's start from the Brooklyn standpoint, because that's the star of this whole deal. When you speak about, oh my goodness gracious, you take a look at the... Three players that the the Nets got, Kyrie and now James Harden and Kevin Durant. Oh, my goodness. I mean, you know, you have guys. This is, this is going to be like the modern-day Doug Bowes team of Denver where he had, um, you know, Alex English and Dan Issel and oh, who was the other guy that used to score 20 all the time? I know Issel, um, Alex English. I forgot the other guy, but you know, back in the eighties, you had three guys on Denver who was averaging twenty points a game. You had one time in Seattle where you had Dale Ellis and Xavier McDaniel and Tom Chambers. Those guys scored twenty a game. But this is a situation where it could be like, damn man, you could have three guys in Durant, Harden, and Kyrie if they wanted to. They could be all three could be averaging twenty seven, twenty eight a game. And who gives a damn about DeAndre Jordan and Jeff Green and the rest of those guys, Joe Harris, Bruce Bowen, and Timothy Kabuwa, 
Timothy K Timothy K Kabara Kabagu Kubikibakaba whatever. Who cares about what those guys are doing? We already have the scoring taken care of in that situation. So. Yeah, on, on surface, you just think, man, this team is like, you know, this is like a, a, a team in the Drew League, you know, or down on Rucker or something like that. But the the key, especially with the way Brooklyn Mortgage's future is, how are we going to do this in terms of what are the expectations now? Because now you got to say, hey, you got to win yourself a championship. So basically, James Harden is going to be the James Harden we know for, I would say, Another, including this year, I would say another three years. You give this guy three years of as being one of the elite basketball players in the world, still being an elite scorer, that will bring him to about 33, 34. If James can take, take care of himself, I don't, I don't know what the influence of Kyrie or KD is going to be with him not being in the strip clubs and having the lifestyle that he had when he was with Houston. Yeah, I mean, when you're with Houston, the James Harden that was in Houston and he was in his mid to late 20s, yeah, you can go ahead and have that type of lifestyle at that age. But now moving forward, and this is going to be the best chance and maybe the last chance that Harden's going to have to win a championship, how dedicated is he going to be to keeping his mental sharp, to keeping his physical sharp, and to uh, sacrificing a little bit so he can do the same thing what... Kevin uh, Garnett, Ray Allen, and Paul Pierce did when they came together in Boston, which is to win a championship by, by um, uh, you know, taking a role that they, they weren't used to by subjugating some of the skills that they had when they were the main guys in their squads before they come together and, again, sacrificing some of the scoring, sacrificing some of the spotlight, sacrificing being the franchise player, sacrificing all those things. What are the roles? What are the responsibilities going to be between Kyrie, James Harden, and Kevin Durant? We will see. Now, those guys, basketball-wise, are smart enough. And then, let's not uh, discount, um, let's not discount um, Mike D'Antoni, who's the assistant for the Brooklyn Nets, a guy who can get the most out of players who want to score, can get the most out of an offense, especially when you have the firepower that these three, these three guys have. And he's very intimate in terms of what James Harden can do from an offensive standpoint for coaching him the years that he did when he was in Houston. So if anybody's going to be able to make this work, you're speaking about those three players along with D'Antoni, who I'm quite sure on Steve Nash's uh, coaching staff is serving as the offensive coordinator, that he will be able to maximize the ability of these three guys getting along. And again, you have Jeff Green, who doesn't need the ball to score, or Jeff Green, who, whose role is not to uh, score points. DeAndre Jordan's role is definitely not to score points. And everybody else on that team, Joe Harris is nothing more than a shooter. Bruce Bowen is a good all-around glue guy. But there's nobody out there on that Brooklyn Nets squad right now Currently, that's like, yeah, well, you know, I need the ball too, Kyrie, KD, and James. So it's not that's not a situation. So the um, so D'Antoni and such can concentrate mainly on implementing an offense for those three guys. But moving forward, right? So you're thinking to yourself, okay, this has got to be a championship squad. You got a team here who can maybe score 125, 128 on any given night, maybe up to 140. On any given night. But let's just say the average for this team scoring-wise should be somewhere between 113 and 122 a game. Is that good enough to win a championship? If the team that's constituted right now for the Brooklyn Nets, 
They're, they're done basically until maybe they get a big man on the buyout or maybe get themselves a veteran to come off the bench near the uh, trade deadline or something like that. But this is basically the core of their squad right here. If that if This team right here, the way it looks, is this team good enough to win a championship? My question for you would be, if you say yes, who's going to be playing defense? Who's going to be able to play defense on this team? Who's going to be able to guard Joel Embiid the way Embiid is playing right now on the post in the playoffs on this team? Who's going to be able to rebound on that team? Who's going to be the player to take the game-winning shot on that team? And the other two guys be satisfied with the role that that person is going to be the guy. Maybe they'll be a situation where wherever the ball finds either one of those three with the shot clock running down or with the game time clock running down, that'll be the guy who's going to be taking the game winning shot. Can you have that type of philosophy on that team? What should be the goal in terms of a championship? Are we speaking about this season? If it's this season, I don't think so. I think if the Nets are going to win a championship, I think we're looking next season or the season after that. And with the ability for Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant to uh, enter free agency, how quickly does this have to work to convince these guys if they don't win a championship this year to stick around for another season or two? Again, James Harden is signed for a few more years. Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving can become free agents rather quickly. And as we see with Kyrie Irving, can you predict anything this guy does? So, yeah, next season should be definitely be their best chance of winning a championship. So, I think the biggest impact for Brooklyn, besides going ahead and getting James Harden, is the fact that they had to give up Jared Allen. Now, DeAndre Jordan, I mean, very nice to uh, have friends in the right places. And part of the deal when Durant and Kyrie Irving came and signed with the Brooklyn Nets is that DeAndre Jordan was kept what was included in the deal. So the Nets really had no, really had no uh, choice. Well, they did have a choice. They could go ahead and sacrifice and bring DeAndre Jordan and get Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, or they could laugh and say, man, get the fuck out of here. DeAndre Jordan, please. And they could have the possibility of not getting Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. So they said, all right, all right, all right. But damn, you know, when you take a look at the... <laughs> If you take a look at the difference between DeAndre Jordan and Jared Allen, let me see here this season. Allen was averaging 11 points and 10 rebounds per game. DeAndre Jordan is averaging 4 points and 6 rebounds per game. And DeAndre Jordan has gotten multiple DNP CDs, which it did not play coach's decisions this season already. Oh, and by the way, DeAndre is 32 years old. Jared Allen is 22 years old. <laughs> Oh, we got to keep Kyrie happy. We got to keep Katie happy. So we got to go ahead and do what we need to do. We don't want to upset DeAndre because if we upset DeAndre, that means we're going to upset Katie and Kyrie. So we have to go ahead and make the sacrifice. And hopefully the addition of James Harden can mean that despite the fact that we have no one to guard that big monster in Philadelphia in the post, we'll have enough scoring on the perimeter and enough scoring genius with Kyrie, KD, and James to, uh, to uh, you know, mitigate the destruction that Embiid's going to have on our interior. So the best team in the conference so far, I think, of the Philadelphia 76ers. So that's the team that the, so far, only, only 12, 13 games into the season. But so far, Philadelphia seems like they're the team that's going to be 
the team to beat in the uh, Eastern Conference. Now, the Milwaukee Bucks are still gelling with uh, Drew Holiday and Giannis and, the, and and those guys and building that foundation again. The Boston Celtics are still waiting for Kimball Walker uh, to return. And with COVID, with, that, with COVID going on, uh, we don't know exactly when these teams will finally be able to gel. If we're speaking about games being postponed and we're speaking about players missing games because of COVID protocol. So, you know, in this situation, even with the Nets, I mean, we don't know. I mean, Kyrie was supposed to come back on Saturday, but now that's been put on hold, even though eventually he is going to be coming back. And D, uh, KD missed a couple of games because of COVID. James Harden's got to get himself back into shape. So this whole thing is not going to gel, gel immediately. So how many games are the Nets going to fall behind before they can go ahead and turn that corner and become a viable contender in the Eastern Conference, even if that's going to be the case this season? Because Philadelphia right now, yeah, they're 8-4 overall tied for second in the Eastern Conference. But then again, a lot of players were missed during that during this stretch because of COVID-related issues. And when <coughs> excuse me, and when um, Simmons and Joel Embiid play, the Sixers are 8-1. and one. And when you have a lineup that includes Tobias Harris, Danny Green, Seth Curry to go along with Simmons and Embiid, the squad, the rotation, or the starting lineup that hopefully, if you're a Philadelphia 76er fan, it's going to be presented in the playoff. That team right now is undefeated at 7-0. and And you've got Embiid playing like an MVP so far. So look, 26 points, 12 rebounds, 3 assists, block and a half per game. True shooting percentage of 64.2. Is this the Doc Rivers effect? Is this the light finally coming on effect? He doesn't look any... Body-wise, he doesn't look anything like, wow, man, you must have gone into the lab and just dedicated yourself in terms of... Uh, reshaping your body and doing anything like that. He still doesn't have a go-to post-up move, but I don't know if it's the Doc Rivers effect or what, but Embiid is playing like a monster. And I don't give a damn, and I've said this for years, outside of LeBron, there's nobody in terms of we just can't do anything with that guy when it comes to Joel Embiid, when Joel Embiid is engaged, when Joel Embiid is hungry, when Joel Embiid wants to be the best big man or the best player in the game. There's nobody who has the size, who has the combination of size, skill, strength, and talent at the center position that can stop Joel Embiid when Joel Embiid wants to be unstoppable. The only problem with Joel Embiid is he does not want to be unstoppable sometimes. Or he takes his talent for granted sometimes. He doesn't play hard all the time sometimes. So if the light finally went on and he's like, man, you know what? I have a chance to average like 28, 14 um, four and two blocks a game and become this generation's Wilt Chamberlain, Shaq, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in terms of being the best center in the game and really having an impact. If he's got that mentality, what's Brooklyn going to do? Because he'll eat DeAndre Jordan for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And then if he gets DeAndre Jordan in foul trouble, who's going to guard him? Because right now the backup center is Jeff Green. And how I love every person and everybody and every player who played for Georgetown University, you got that damn right. There ain't no way that um, Jeff Green is going to be able to guard Joel Embiid. Joel Embiid half-assing it and 50% would dominate Jeff Green. I mean, that's this generation's idea of Kurt Rambis guarding Moses Malone in the 83 finals. Ain't nobody going to be stopping Joel Embiid if he's motivated to play like that so if you're 
Brooklyn, what's up with that? And again, we have Boston, we have Milwaukee, we still have the defending Eastern Conference champions, Miami Heat, who, yeah, they started off a little bit slowly. They're playing Tyler Hero now at the point guard position, and I'm quite sure since James Harden is now traded, you don't have to hear if you're a Miami Heat player, you don't have to hear the macerations of a trade because we've heard all this stuff about the Heat and the and the Rockets were engaged in talks and Tyler Hero was discussed and Duncan Robinson was discussed and all these other guys were discussed. So, you know, we're not dealing with veterans who've been around the block for eight, ten years in the NBA. We're talking about a young guy in Tyler Hero who's just starting off his career. We're speaking about someone like a Duncan Robinson. I mean, how type, what type of effect did hearing trade rumors and hearing trade talks and, well, now the... Heat are interested, and yeah, they might they might include you in a trade and all this kind of stuff. How is something like that going to affect Tyler Hero when only six months ago people on that in that organization were saying that Tyler Hero is going to wind up being a better basketball player than Devin Booker? So all of that stuff takes into effect, and all of that stuff takes time to you know finally find out, finally marinate, and see what we've got at the end of the cooking process. So the cooking process is going to be ending once the playoffs start. Jimmy Butler, who suffered a sprained ankle early in the season, he's getting back to that. How are these teams going to shape out and look once the playoff season starts? So again, you also have to mix in the fact that these guys are going to be dealing with COVID. So there's not going to be the same amount of routine. There's not going to be the same amount of consistency that exists in a season like this. So I think it was a a move that... uh, Brooklyn had to make again. I, I wouldn't have. I would have done everything I could not to include Jared Allen, but if it means getting James Harden, and you want to try to win every game, and and let's and let's forget. Let's not forget. This we are talking about the New York market. We are talking about a situation where the Knicks are still the king of the court in terms of their popularity, in terms of the most attention. So all of a sudden now Brooklyn, who's tried this before when they went out and made a trade for a well past their expiration date of being useful, Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett, that didn't work out too much, but they're going to try another bite at the apple with a guy like James Harden and roll out the three. So we'll see what happens. It was a deal at least that got them uh, a lot of ink and a lot of press and a lot of attention, and they'll be the stars of the show. Once they roll out those three, whenever that's going to be. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. So we talked about the situation with the Brooklyn Nets. Now, let's talk about the Houston Rockets. Was it a good move for Houston? What do you think? Yes? No? Maybe? I'm thinking, look, you have to start the rebuilding process sometime. So it was a matter of, let's just go ahead Start it now instead of kicking the can down the road. I mean, if, if James Harden signed that two-year, 50 mil per year contract extension, Houston would be facing this problem two to three years from now. And with the way the Lakers are humming and doing their thing, what the Clippers are doing, the Rockets weren't going to win a championship. James Harden, the era of James Harden and the Houston Rockets being the face of the franchise, just, it, it ran its course. And, and believe me, the Rockets tried everything. Whenever James Harden want, he got. You want Kevin McHale fired? Fine, we'll fire Kevin McHale. You want Dwight Howard on this team? When Dwight Howard was a serviceable player? Fine, we'll go ahead and get Dwight Howard. You want Chris Paul on this team? Fine, we'll go ahead and 
get Chris Paul. Oh, now you don't want Chris Paul on the team and you want your good buddy Russell Westbrook? Fine, we'll go ahead and mortgage the future to get yourself Russell Westbrook. So the Rockets did everything humanly possible they could to bring a championship to Houston. And James Harden, for the most part, filled the bill. Again, he was the face of the franchise, a guy who was scoring titles, a guy who didn't need to have load management, a guy who's going to play 78, 80, 80 games uh, per season, a guy who was going to uh, do everything that he could, one of the best players in the game, won an MVP with Houston. So, yeah, you can go ahead and you could talk about the missteps and talk about the coming up short in important games in the NBA playoffs. That'll that'll always be a scarlet letter for his uh, for his time in Houston, no doubt about it. But if you take a look at where the franchise was before James Harden got there and then what he did in the preceding eight years he was with that team, I think it was a win-win situation. It got him to a Western Conference championship a couple of times. Just didn't get it done. Just, just didn't get it done. But I don't think it's anything for... Rockets fans to feel better or angry over. I would be, I would, I would be happy if I was a Houston Rockets fan right now. Not, not just because of all the dysfunction. Not just because the ways James Harden acted um, to begin the season. I think it was, you know what? Let's go ahead and start the rebuilding process right now, where no one can come into the uh, arena and take a look at them. Where this season is going to be goofy and, and, and out of whack because of the uh, COVID situation. Let's go ahead and let's just start the rebuilding process right now. So when things get back to where they were before, hopefully in a year or two or whatever, that, whatever that's going to be, that we'll be able to uh, rock and roll and load and get ready to go. So look, Harden, Harden is not the beloved figure. In Houston, for instance, like Damian Lillard is important. If, if a time comes where Damian Lillard says, look, I'm, I'm tired of losing in the first round every every year. So I'm 32, 33 years old. I've got one more shot in my somewhat athletic prime to win a championship. You guys need to go ahead and you guys need to uh, Ray Bork me. So could you please, can I please lead the Boston Bruins and go to the Colorado Avalanche and win an NHL Stanley Cup? If Damian Lillard pulls that pull that off or for or try to do, do something like that NBA style it would hurt the Portland community so much more because Portland is, is so intertwined and passionate about his basketball team the city of Houston the NBA the, the Rockets have you seen all the half empty or have you seen the Houston Rockets play and you take a look at the arena and it's half half empty when Houston was doing his thing the city of Houston and the surrounding areas, even that region of the country, that's not an NBA hotbed. NBA popularity in that region and in that state and in that, 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 that area, that's behind the NFL, college football, and even high school football. So not going to be too many people up there, you know, screaming and yelling and, you know, raising hell because they traded <coughs> James Harden. James Harden wasn't drafted by the Rockets. So he wasn't a guy that was, you know, birthed and his career blossomed and grew and was nurtured by the organization. He was far from the James Harden that became James Harden when he was traded from Oklahoma City to the uh, to the Rockets. But yet still, this wasn't something to where James Harden came in as a young lad and grew and made the mistakes and did everything before our eyes. And the Houston community had the opportunity to watch him grow. And now as a man, he's going ahead and looking for greener pastures. This wasn't the same reaction when Kevin Durant left Oklahoma City and went to the Golden State Warriors. Again, Oklahoma City, their 
allegiance to that team is a lot stronger than the than the Houston Rockets or the, the Houston Texas Texan uh, organization or Houston Texan area. But yeah, I mean, you know, no one's going to be sitting up here talking about oh shit, this, that, and the other. So it was a it was a move that had to be made, and it was a move that if you're a Houston Rockets fan, you're glad that you made. So according to league sources. After the Lakers smashed the Rockets for the second game in a row, if you didn't see it, Harden went, uh, Harden went to the podium and claimed that the team wasn't good enough and it can't be fixed. And with that, those comments it set Tilman Fertitta off. The players in the locker room were all pissed off, particularly John Wall and Demarcus Cousins. So it was like, look, I don't give a fuck. Just get it done. That's what Fertitta was talking about. I don't give a damn. Stop with the, uh, we'll wait and see. Stop with, we'll try to assuage his ego. We'll play the waiting game and maybe he'll come around. Now nah, I've seen enough. Get it done. Get it done. Get it done sooner rather than later for uh, those guys to uh, move on from James Harden. That's when Raphael Stone got the... Uh, Got on the horn and said, all right, Brooklyn, all right, Sean, let's go ahead and do this deal. At least Raphael Stone, first-time GM, going the same route as Sam Pressy of the uh, general manager of Oklahoma City and David Griffin. When David Griffin was um, getting ready to trade Anthony Davis, and, and basically the asking price was similar to what Stone was talking about with James Harden, his young player, but player that's going to be a budding superstar that we can build our team around and a lot of draft picks and when Griffin finally acquiesced and sent Davis to his preferred destination which which was the LA Lakers he got a really big haul and they won the draft lottery to get themselves the generational talent that uh, he was asking for in Zion Williamson but uh, Raphael Stone is like hey look man let me just go ahead and just get as many picks as possible and I think in terms of a GM if you're a GM that's what you really want more than anything. If you want to build a team, I would think you want to have the ability to go ahead and to uh, accumulate draft picks so you can build your team that way. If you're you know, taking, getting someone else's trash for your trash, and that, that's not the way I think most GMs want to do this. So I think as far as ego is concerned, Raphael Stone now is going to have a lot of draft picks to play with. And it's not just about drafting players. So Danny Ainge would tell you, hey, look, we had a roster with 15 guaranteed contracts and had two or three first-round draft picks. What am I going to do? What am I going to do with them? And if, you're, if they're in the 20s, or if, they're, if those draft picks are 18, 24, and 27, uh, what are you going to do with them? You don't find too many franchise-type players during... Uh, you know, at that time of the draft. So at least now with all the multitude of picks that Raphael Stone has, I mean, you can package those to get themselves to, to get yourself a player of uh, greater impact. You can go ahead and do a lot of these things. So, yeah, I like, uh, if you're a GM, you got to like that. You got to like that a lot. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. Speaking about the trade between the Rockets and the Pacers and the Cleveland Cavaliers and the um, Brooklyn Nets and all those th- and those teams. Thinking about the what's going to be the uh, potential starting lineup for Houston now. Got John Wall at the point. Victor Oladipo, who you don't know, you don't know if that guy's going to be around once the trade deadline comes. I mean, they could flip Victor Oladipo for a for a young talent or maybe a couple of more draft picks, depending upon how the season is going for Houston. But as of right now. John Wall's at the point. 
Victor Oladipo at the shooting guard. Christian Wood, revelation, is that the small forward P.J. Tucker, who in all actuality is going to be gone and gone pretty soon. He's at the power forward, and DeMarcus Cousins is going to be at the center. And look, so far, John Wall, as I mentioned before, that trade between John Wall and Russell Westbrook, so far the winner, so far leading that trade is going to be John Wall. He's appeared in seven of the Rockets' nine games, missed a couple because of COVID-related issues. He was, someone, he was around someone with COVID. But he's dropped 20-plus points three times so far, showing some of the speed and the burst that he had before the uh, tear torn Achilles. Victor Oladipo has played in nine of the uh, 11 games for Indiana so far. He's looked much better than he did in the bubble. He looks a lot more healthier. He's averaging 25, 4, and, and a couple of steals per game. And he's also playing... He's also playing defense because he wants to get paid. It's, he's in the contract year. Christian Wood is building on his breakout season that he had last year in Detroit. He's averaging 22.5 points, 9.5 rebounds, a block a game, a steal a game. Can't play any defense, but so far so good. He looked really good against San, uh, San Antonio last night. One of the main reasons why Houston came back and won that game. The only problem with Houston going forward with his current roster is the fact that John Wall thinks that he's the... He's going to be the uh, the locker room leader. John Wall still thinks that he's that franchise guy, and he's got DeMarcus Cousins to go along with him. He still sees himself, John Wall still sees himself as a guy who can be a, the face of the franchise. And he also felt that Harden was holding him back and holding the team back from him acquiring that, uh, that, that label or that responsibility. You saw him on the bench. If you watched that game between San Antonio and Houston last night on TNT, you saw him up there, you know, cheering and giving out the instructions and doing all those type of things. I mean, he, he wants to take over that role as being the guy, as being the face. The only problem is he's not that guy, he's not that face, and he's going to go ahead and do that his first year with the team. I mean, with the Wiz, I understand it, because when they drafted him number one, they built the whole goddamn team around him. So I can understand that he wanted to be the guy, even when Bradley Beal came in and through injury as such, Bradley it became Bradley Beal's team, which was the which uh, uh, annoyed and angered John Wall so much that he has to be traded because the Wizards were moving toward making sure to appease and to placate to the needs and wants of Bradley Beal and not John Wall. And John Wall's like, "Well, I'm sorry, who was drafted number one on this team? I'm sorry, who was the one that signed that Supermax contract? Oh, I'm sorry, who's the one that made multiple All-Star games? Oh, I'm sorry, who's the one that's done multiple charity work and, and foundations and everything here in the D.C. area? Oh, I'm sorry, who's the guy in this D.C. area who's still regarded as a, uh, you know, as, as a big deal? I'm, I'm sorry, that would be me. And now all of a sudden you're going to Bradley Beal, my sidekick, my Robin to my Batman? You're going to be going to him? To be asking about trades and coaches and future this and the other. That's my position, man. That's not his. So John Wall got tiffed. And the Wiz were like, all right, man. We, we can't be having this shit. Because if he's going to be doing this shit, he might, you know, call Bradley Beal to be like, you know what? It's going to come down between me and him. And if you're going to go with him, then sorry. Uh, that bridge has been burned. Get me out of here or else I'm going to be leaving when my contract is up. So the Wizards did what they have to do did what they had to do, make that trade for Russell Westbrook. But, uh, yeah, John Wall then goes to Houston and thinks again that he's going to be the John Wall of 2015. Not happening. Not happening. So, Steven Silas, first-time head coach in the league. Thinking about these headaches, you got to deal with the uh, ego of John Wall. You got to deal with the Marcus Cousins. You gotta, you've got to. you already dealt with the whole James Harden situation. 
Gee whiz, you got some impressionable young guys on that team. What are you going to do with Victor Oladipo? All of this stuff swirling around. And really, the only person on your coaching staff who has any type of chance to kind of uh, be the Jerry West to what the Lakers were dealing with with Shaq and Kobe is John Lucas. John Lucas is the only guy that could possibly go to John Wall and DeMarcus Cousins and be like, hey, look, y'all. I mean, you know, you, you got to tone it down. You've got to relax. You got to, you know, you got you got to like, you know, take it down a notch. So I don't feel envy at all for Steven Stylus. But in the long term, because this season basically a wash for the Rockets. But I think in the long term, the Rockets put themselves in position to really make some noise. Again, not for this year. And I know people aren't. People don't want to hear 2023, 24, 25. Shit, we don't even know if this planet is going to be up in 2023, 24, and 25, let alone everything being back to normal. But that's what Houston is looking for. And at least so far, that, that, that journey has now started. The journey of a thousand miles begin with, begins with one step. Well, on Tuesday or Wednesday, whenever they make that trade, that first step toward that journey of being a championship contender started for the Houston Rockets. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us for a lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports, special dedication going out to the great Martin Luther King Jr., who was born on this day, January 15th, we'll be celebrating his birthday on Monday, but um, this is the day, January 15th, that he was born, so um, giving my special shout out, giving my special dedication to... uh, Someone whose lessons in this country we still haven't learned. But some of us are actually trying to do what's necessary to uh, make that happen. So we just keep moving forward. Moving forward. So there you go. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. First segment of the uh, podcast, speaking about the James Harden trade to Brooklyn. What it meant for Brooklyn moving forward. What did it mean for Houston now that James Harden, the James Harden era in the uh, in in Houston is now over. The whole wild card of this trade, man, really, if you speak about it, especially if you're going to be focusing on the Nets, it's all about Kyrie Irving. Kyrie Irving is going to be the wild card for this collaboration to work between these three guys. And, and who knows, man? I, you know, now there's reports talking about 
Kyrie Irving's going to be back on Saturday, or he was supposed to be back on Saturday, but he's going to be back soon. Kron TV, that's K-R-O-N TV's Jason Dumas reported on Wednesday that Irving is prepared to sit out the remainder of the campaign and is growing frustrated or even more frustrated with the Nets because a situation where he doesn't like the fact that they hired Steve Nash and he wasn't... Um, he wasn't told or he wasn't spoken to or he wasn't uh, talked about in terms of the decision to bring in James Harden and all this kind of stuff. And it's just Kyrie being Kyrie, man. I don't know. And you know, reports indicating Brooklyn's acquisition of James Harden was not approved by Irving because, well, he wasn't answering his fucking phone call when the Nets called him. So he wasn't answering his call when the Nets were calling to see maybe if this was something that they wanted to do. Because if you remember, this guy took off and didn't explain to anybody where he was going. He just said he needed some personal time. We didn't know what it was all about. But he just decided to take off and go ahead and do his own thing. So when the Nets called and talked about, hey, you know what? We're thinking about uh, getting James Harden. We're in the final stages. What do you think? Well, Kyrie didn't answer the phone. So the trade was made because he didn't answer the phone. He wasn't available. He wasn't making himself available. Now reports are saying that, well, he's mad because they didn't consult with him. We tried, you you fucking mental midget, but we didn't get your, you didn't answer the phone call. Oh, boy. He's also missed Brooklyn's last five games while the NBA is investigating videos of him being maskless, partying, I think, I guess, with his, uh, a party for his stepsister or something like that. So he's upset about that. He's upset about the hiring of Steve Nash. Oh, man, life with Kyrie. Good Lord. So this is what Dumas tweeted. The Brooklyn Nets were always interested in acquiring James Harden, but the deal became imperative in light of the situation with Kyrie Irving. Kyrie is willing to sit out the year if need be, those close to him are saying. Indeed, also described the relationship between Irving and, and uh, teammate Kevin Durant as very distant. <laughs> I remember when this whole thing got together. I think when they were talking, I don't know if it was Jackie McMullen who wrote an excellent piece in ESPN.com years ago when this first, when the, when the, when the, when the band got together, you know, Kyrie and KD and DeAndre Jordan. And I think it was Jackie McMullen who wrote about the, um, you know, the foundation of how this got together and how those guys bonded when they were on the U.S. Olympic team and when they were on the yacht where they were hanging out during the games and they were talking about, you know, we need to, it would be so great to get together and play as one and play together. And so even when, I think it was a situation where KD was on his last year, contract year with the Golden State Warriors, Kyrie was on this last year with the Boston Celtics or something like that. And DeAndre was kind of fiddling around between Dallas and the Clippers and that whole nonsense and that whole fiasco that those guys promised each other. that you know, they made a blood um, guarantee or a commitment to each other that they would play on the same team together and have a lot of fun. <laughs> where, where, where did all that go to? Now, again, this is reporting. So we haven't heard this from Kyrie and KD is not saying anything. So... I don't know, man. I, I don't know what to make of this. Haven't been hanging around Kyrie. I wasn't privy to any thoughts and opinions of Kyrie's, you know, his relationship with Kevin Durant and, and Steve Nash. So take it as you will, you know, take it with a grain of salt. But if, if these things are true and a lot of time where there's smoke, there's fire, it's 
especially when it comes down to uh, Kyrie Irving. It's it's a situation where it's like, really, man. I mean, again, these guys were like, we need to be together and we love each other in terms of, you know, we're great friends and we're hanging out. And you remember that situation where KD and Kyrie were talking to each other during the All-Star game when KD was with the Warriors and Kyrie was with Boston. And, oh, my goodness, those guys are talking about getting in cahoots. And those guys were like, no, 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 not us. Uh-uh. We were just two guys, you know, saying what's up, you know, exchanging pleasantries. No, 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 no. And, again, it winded up, wound up that, yeah, those guys were together. And they talked about the beauty of playing with each other and this, that, and the other. And damn, man, less than two years later, if these reports are correct, you're already at one end, one end of the spectrum regarding this. It took you that short amount of time. Damn, man, y'all were only married for like three months, and all of a sudden now y'all want a divorce, or y'all are already, you know, out there cheating on others. Man, it's like, you know, y'all are like best, best friends, best buddies, and you decided to, you know, room together in college, and already you guys are at each other's throats? <sighs> oh, well, not, I shouldn't say each other. I mean, Kyrie is already looking for someone, looking for another roommate. He's already cheating on KD, and he's just been married to him for a couple of months. I don't know, man. I don't, I don't. I don't get Kyrie. I don't understand Kyrie. And I don't know the man well enough to get him or to understand him. But I think if even if I was best friends with him, I don't know, man. I, I, I don't know. 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 What he presents to the outside public is very confusing, perplexing. I don't know. I don't know. So Brooklyn Nets general manager Sean Marks, he said that Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving have conviction. That's what he said. Conviction about the direction of the team in the wake of the trade to land James Harden and are prepared to make the necessary on-court sacrifices. So, I don't know. Mark said he consulted the franchise stars at the next begin to move swiftly toward a trade for Harden on Wednesday. And it seems like Kyrie, it's, it seems like Kyrie was on board. And as I mentioned before, as I went ahead and started to record this podcast, reports are that Kyrie's going to come back. So... Who, who knows? Who knows what's going to happen between, oh, I don't know, I'm recording this right now at, at uh, 4.15 in the afternoon. Who knows what's going to happen with Kyrie between 4.15 Pacific Standard Time and 4.30. He, he might decide that, you know what, fuck it, I'm just going to retire. Who knows with him? Who knows with this guy? Who knows what Kyrie is going through day to day, minute to minute, hour by hour? Minute by minute, and I'm not talking about the Doobie, Doobie Brothers. This guy, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't hang around him. So it just seems that, I don't know. I think that's the thing that basically is anybody, I think Kyrie even, when it comes to Kyrie, his main deal with himself is, I don't know. I can't predict what I'm going to do. I, don't, I can't predict what my feelings are going to be. I can't predict what's going to move me from day to day, moment to moment, incident to incident, feeling to feeling. I don't know, man. It just seems like this guy just just goes on his initial thought, his initial whim, his initial feeling. He doesn't kind of think things through. He doesn't look at the long picture. I don't know. I don't. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It just seems like he's got Larry Brown disease. You remember the old coach for... Um, I don't know, like, um, I mean, Larry Brown coached all over the place. He coached in, at UCLA. He coached at SMU. He coached at uh, New York. He coached the Clippers. It seemed like every few years he was moving on to something else. And someone who really knew Larry Brown, when asked to explain why Larry Brown is the way Larry Brown is, he explained that 
Larry Brown seems to be happy only when he's unhappy. That's the same thing with uh, Nick or Nate Diaz, the uh, UFC fighters. They asked his trainers, what's up with Nate Diaz? Why does he... And the guy was like, because Nate Diaz, the only time he's happy is when he's unhappy. I think Kyrie Irving falls into the same spot. I, I don't know if... I don't know if Kyrie Irving can deal with, like, utopia. Like, utopia for him is like chaos all around. I don't know if, if Kyrie can, set, can, 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 be, can be happy with a set routine for a long period of time, no matter how great it is. It's, it's like he gets bored with being happy. It's like he gets bored with everything being great. And he's like, yeah, you know, I need to spice things up a little bit. I need to, I need to shake things up a little bit. You know, my mind is that I'm not being challenged mentally. Or I don't know what I don't know. I don't. It goes back to once again. I don't know. I've never met Kyrie Irving. I never talked to Kyrie Irving. I don't even think Kyrie Irving knows who Kyrie Ir Irving is. So I don't know. I don't know. So could he retire? Stephen A. was talking about he needs to retire. I don't, I don't know, man. I mean, what he told Tim Tim Bontemps. Of VSPM, who, by the way, does an awesome job when he's on the uh, Hoop Collective with um, Brian Windhorst. When Windhorst does his podcast and Tim Bontemps is on there, must listen to. But what Kyrie told Bontemps of ESPN in November of 2018, he said, quote, I love basketball itself, but everything that comes with it, it really, it doesn't really matter to me in terms of my life. I enjoy the game. I enjoy being with my teammates playing every single day. So... That's but but basically he's talking about hey man I I could I could see myself walking away possibly retiring in my early to mid thirties that's what he told him that's what he told Bond Temps as much as I love basketball and everything like that yeah I could walk away I could I could go ahead and do a Jim Brown I could go ahead and do a Barry Sanders I could go ahead and uh, do one of those deals if I'm not happy I could go ahead and do a Marvin Hagler if I'm uh, not happy so and what makes Kyrie Irving happy I don't know who knows I don't think he knows. So why is Irving not with the team? I, <laughs> I mean, maybe what happened with the insurrection of the U.S. Capitol maybe forced him to reflect and maybe I need to do something else. Maybe I need to be a freedom fighter. Maybe I need to do something to help this country, to help this world. Maybe, he's un maybe he was unsatisfied with the response from the NBA owners towards social justice. He feels like he's a pawn and feels like he's nothing more than a high-priced slave who's doing the bidding of the master, which is the, the white man, rich Republican owner of the team. And he's no longer going to be a slave. I'm not going to be a million-dollar slave. I'm going to get myself unshackled from these chains that bind me to do your bidding. And I'm going to go out in the world and show what black power really means and help the community and do all these type of things. Maybe he's going to go the Ricky Williams route the old running back for uh, Miami and New Orleans. Maybe he's going to start taking yoga and s start smoking dope. And I don't, who knows? Who knows? But that's Kyrie Irving. That's Kyrie Irving. He's fined 50,000 grand. He's fined 50 grand for uh, that nonsense, which the NBA was talking about. Oh, you're going to be at a party, which you don't have a mask on. And, you know, you're, it goes against NBA protocol when it comes to COVID, you might not like it, you might disagree with it, but sorry, if you're going to be working for the NBA, if you're going to be doing these things, you have to go ahead and abide by the rules. So if you don't, the fine is $50,000, or at least in this case, the fine is $50,000, and he's going to lose two games worth of salary, which is roughly around $820,000. 
That's how much he's going to lose this week. Now, before everybody loses their mind about, oh, I can't fucking believe it. We have people in this country. We have people all over the world. They're going into poverty. They're being evicted from their homes. They have nowhere to stay. They're losing their jobs. And because of their losing their jobs, their bank accounts are being depleted and blah, blah, blah. And this fucking asshole known as Kyrie Irving because he wants to go to a fucking party and not abide by COVID regulations for the league that employs him, he's going to give up 50 grand like it's no big deal. And he's going to miss eight, he's going to, you know, he's going to cough up $820,000 because he doesn't feel like playing basketball while there's people out there on the streets because they can't afford to pay their bills. Oh, how, what a fucking asshole this guy is. What a horrible human being he is. Hey, look, man, fuck y'all for saying that type of shit. I don't, don't, I don't mind Kyrie Irving or anybody else what they want to do with their money. Don't give a damn. Whatever you want to do with your money, that's your business. You don't tell me how to spend my money. You don't tell me how to manage my money. I won't get into your business when it comes to managing your money. He's rich enough to where he can cough up $820,000. If he paid and he collected $820,000, it doesn't mean that people won't be starving. It doesn't mean that people won't be homeless. It doesn't mean that people won't lose their job. What Kyrie Irving does with his money, Mitch Album, is none of your goddamn business. So don't, don't fucking start characterizing people when they want to miss games or they want to cough up that kind of money. People lose millions upon millions of dollars every single day on whims. I can't understand someone who's going to lose $3,000 placing bets. I don't understand someone who's going to spend $5,000 on a watch. I can't, I can't, I don't understand or get how someone can spend exorbitant amount of money on furniture or on cars or anything else. But you know what? That's none of my goddamn business what they fucking do with their money. Stay out of them, stay out of their business. I'll stay out of your business if you stay out of my business with the finances. So the fact that they always throw that in there. He will lose two games worth of salary. So to make it seem even, you know, make Kyrie Irving look like an even worse guy. They're going to um, print or they're going to tell us how much money it is. None of, none of our fucking business how much money Kyrie Irving is going to be losing. And to judge him because of that is wrong. To judge him on that is wrong. Yeah, Kyrie Irving is weird. Kyrie Irving is uh, unique. Kyrie Irving is different. Kyrie Irving, I guess, sometimes can be a pain in the ass. Kyrie Irving is a mystery upon a mystery within a riddle within a mystery. Kyrie Irving might be a mental midget. Kyrie Irving might be mentally weak. Kyrie Irving, any other negative connotations or characterizations you want to give to Kyrie Irving, you can apply from the outside looking in. From what you have, from what we know of Kyrie Irving, because none of us has been with him. None of us don't know. None of us know him. None of us hang out with him. None of us have these conversations with him. So we really don't know Kyrie Irving enough to be really concrete and absolute and making these decisions and making these. You know, thoughts and opinions about his character. But from what Kyrie Irving brings to us and what the media portrays Kyrie Irving to be, all of those character characteristics seem to be apropos. But when it comes to, you know, how much money he spends and how much money he makes and what he does with his money, I don't, that's, no, I'm not going, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go there. So, you know, that's that's the deal with Kyrie Irving. So, I mean, what what he does with his money doesn't. I'm still going to be able. Uh, Kyrie Irving missing game checks is not going to affect my way of life one way or the other. It ain't going to affect yours. It ain't going to affect yours, and it definitely ain't going to affect yours. So, you know, let's please kind of hold off on the Kyrie Irving is a bad guy, and what makes him even worse is the fact that he's going to, you know, 
forfeit $820,000. I mean, I can't stand Floyd Mayweather Jr. I cannot stand Floyd Mayweather Jr. I, well, for a person who's never met Floyd Mayweather Jr. to say I hate Floyd Mayweather Jr., that's a little, I don't know, that's a little irrational, but uh, Floyd Mayweather Jr. is not one of my favorite human beings from how he's how he portrays himself. But I've never sat there and been like, you know, one of the reasons why I can't stand Floyd Mayweather Jr. is the way he flaunts his money. During times where rough and he wants to go ahead and take pictures of himself on Instagram and everything and talk about how much money he makes and all that kind of stuff. Good for you, Floyd. If you're that insecure about yourself or that's the way you make money or that's the way you want to brand yourself, hey, man, go for it. Fantastic. Wonderful. I don't know, man. I've always said with Floyd Mayweather Jr., go out. And uh, if you want to live your life like a Colombian drug lord, go for it. Then, you know, that's, that's, that's your business, what, it, what you do with your money. So, you know, I, I, I don't judge people based on that. You know, what Floyd Mayweather does with his money, just like any other high-priced athlete, high-priced businessman or whatever, that's, I don't, I don't uh, that doesn't fall into my whether I like him or don't like him stuff. But Lord knows if I was rich, I wouldn't be giving anybody jack fucking shit which who I didn't want to, you know, and then I would be quite salty if uh, people started, you know, talking about how much money I made and how much money I'm blowing and then go ahead and, and um, comment on that. So, yeah, I don't know how I got on this subject, but it's just, it just pisses me off. So, yeah, man, so the whole wild card in this deal is Kyrie Irving in terms of when is he coming back? What's his relationship going to be with James and Kevin? What's his relationship with the Nets organization moving forward? Kyrie Irving was the one guy maybe who's ever played basketball who didn't like um, or couldn't get along or didn't agree with Brad Stevens. I mean, how, how does that happen? How does how does that come about? He wins a championship with Cleveland. Nah, I'm saying, you know, I don't want to be LeBron's sidekick and this, that, and the other. Then he goes to Boston. It's like, ah, you know, Brad Stevens did any other. And these young guys, uh, you know, they don't know how to act. We fly into Orlando and instead of getting ready for the game the next day, these guys go out and start partying. What the hell's the matter with these guys and this, that, and the other? Then, you know, look, the, the world is flat or the earth is flat and all that kind of stuff. That doesn't bother me so much. I mean, shit. We got motherfuckers who, we got millions upon millions of people who think that, uh, that the uh, jackass that's in the White House right now won the election and that somehow the election was rigged. We got over 70 million people in this country who were fucking stupid enough to think that the fucking jackass dictator wannabe is a good choice to lead this country for another four years. So please, for, 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 if you want to start talking about, you know, you want to start denigrating and speak on someone's intelligence in, uh, uh, intelligence in that realm, take a look in the mirror. Now, there's over 75 million people who voted for a fucking wannabe dictator who's a, who's a threat to our democracy. You stupid motherfuckers should not be commenting on anything involving common sense. So, you know, that's that's my deal with that. So, Kyrie Irving, you're the wild card, my man. It'll be interesting to see what's going to happen. But the Nets are counting on you. One of the reasons why many people are talking about the deal was done so quickly was from the Brooklyn standpoint was the the um, the mystery which is Kyrie the unpredictability which is Kyrie Irving. So if those guys can get it together, fine. But a situation where it's like Kyrie Irving is always going to put somebody on edge. 
Brooklyn could win every single game by 100 and win the NBA championship. And next year, Kyrie Irving is going to be talking about, ah, you know, I'm going to retire because, you know, this is not fulfilling. This is not stimulating my mentals. And, you know, this is becoming too easy. And I need a, I need a bigger challenge in life. So I might want to be traded to the, uh, I might want to be traded to, I don't know, the fucking Sacramento Kings or something like that. I don't, who, who knows what Kyrie is going to do? You know, NBA basketball now has just become too pedestrian for me, and it really doesn't stimulate my my third eye and my mentals and everything like that. So I'm going to uh, take my sage, and I'm going to take my learned self, and I'm just going to walk around the earth, and I'm just going to see what I can do to solve everyone's problems and, and be the black Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus was black, but I'm talking about be the modern-day Jesus Christ. Who knows with Kyrie Irving? But... Uh, Good luck to you. Good luck to Brooklyn. Good luck to Steve Nash. Good luck to Sean Marks. Kyrie Irving, he's all yours. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us on a special day, the birthday of the great Martin Luther King Jr., born on this date in the year 1929. That was a long time ago, wasn't it? So uh, up here as I'm recording this podcast, watching the uh, Dallas Mavericks and the Milwaukee Bucks, um, Giannis versus Luka. Good game. Good game so far. Good game so far. Here's, here's one thing I want to ask a question, man. Um, you know, have you seen these Chick-fil-A commercials? I don't, I don't know what the point is. I guess maybe, you know, if you think that these are really good people and helpful people in the community, that you'll go ahead and you'll buy their food. But look, man, all this bullshit about, uh, you know, uh, my kid couldn't fix a tie or my grandson couldn't tie a tie. So we went to Chick-fil-A and the guy was like, hey, there we go. And the guy was deaf and no one understood what he was talking about. But luckily, one of the employees knew how to, knew how to uh, do signs. So they got the order taken care of. And it was this girl's birthday. So they all sang happy birthday. And this woman had a flat tire. So the guy changed the flat tire. I don't give a shit about all that. Do you know how to make my fucking food? Chick-fil-A, I mean, as long as the food is good, I don't give a damn. You don't need to fix my tire. You don't need to show me how to tie a tie. You don't need to sing happy birthday to me. Just, just give me my food. Just give me my chicken sandwich and we'll be good. And as long as, it's, as long as it tastes good, I don't give a damn. What's all this other stuff? This, oh yeah, isn't it wonderful? And you know, I meet everybody and I give them my Air 5 and all this kind of great stuff. And I want to make sure, oh, just, just, 
just give me my food and make sure the lines aren't so goddamn long for me to get my food. I've never eaten a Chick-fil-A. I never have because every time we just got a Chick-fil-A a couple of years ago in Vegas. But every time I go by there, no more, no matter if it's morning, noon, or night, the lines are always around the block. And it's like, man, what type of food are they serving to where it's in that high of demand? I'm not a stay-in-the-line. I'm not a stay-in-the-drive-thru lane kind of a guy. I don't. It takes me long enough to stay in the line or to, you know, Stand in line when I go through Costco trying to get gas from my car on a busy day. I'm not interested in terms of standing in line. I don't go to Starbucks. I've never been to Starbucks. Not really interested. Never drank coffee before. So everything about Starbucks has no value for me. For those who do, congratulations. Not saying I'm better than you, but for me, no thanks. So I've never been in a long line, long line at the drive-thru for Starbucks. Been in a long line for in and out for those who don't know In-N-Out Burgers, I mean, they're, they're good. I wouldn't do it on a consistent basis. It's a good burger. There's no doubt it's a good burger. Red Robins, to me, is better, and you get the boundless fries, so, you know, game set, set and match on that one, but I see all these folks outside, you know, as I mentioned before, we have a lot of In-N-Outs. It's an In-N-Out like five minutes from my house, and every time I go down there, it's always line behind the, you know, line for as long as the eye can see, and I'm like, damn, y'all, the burger's is nice, but I mean, it ain't all that. The shakes are nice, but I mean, I'll go to Sonic. I like Sonic shakes, shakes just as much as um, In and Out. I don't know. I mean, you know, God bless you. If I if I go to uh, In and Out, I normally go when it's like on a, on a weekend night when it's like ten minutes left before it closes. So I'll go there like at one a.m. in the morning or something, since like that. That's the only time when the lines are manageable. And it's like, all right, because I do enjoy the burger. I mean, the burger's good. Don't get me wrong. It's just I'm not going to be waiting 45 minutes for, to get a burger. <laughs> it's like, you know, I'll, I'll go to I'll go to a Burger King or something like that. I mean, the In-N-Out's bur- better, but it's not that much better for me to be waiting in line that long and burning my gas and, you know, twiddling my thumbs waiting for that. So, you know, God bless them. They're making money, though. So, you know, and. You know, people really love that burger and they have the patience. Hey, that's a uh, skill that I don't have. So you're one-upping on me on that one. So there you go. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. But yeah, the uh, Mavericks and the uh, Bucks. Good game. Good game on ESP. And uh, Let me see. What am I going to be talking about here? Oh, yes, 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 yes. yes. Let's um, get, go to the NFL news. Have a seat, will you? Have a seat for me. Thank you very much. Let's talk about some NFL news. Urban Meyer. Now the new head coach for Jacksonville. In a video on the team's website, Meyer discussed what led him to return to coaching a couple of years after citing health concerns for stepping down at Ohio State. He said that uh, he heard this is the best job available and that he was left with the same impression after looking at what the Jags had to offer and what he said about his decision to return to the NFL and return to coaching. He said that it had to be perfect. This was not a knee-jerk reaction. This is something I've been studying for a long time. Not necessarily this job, but just the NFL. The opportunity presented itself. And whether it's watching films, studying the roster, understanding the salary cap, understanding what we have available to us with the number one pick, the fact that I love Jacksonville, Duval County, and 904 deserved a chance to win. Duval County is the county where Jacksonville is in, and the 904 is, I guess, the area code, so... There you go, man. There you go. So he's now the head coach. Myself with the number one pick. If I'm Sean Conn, I might go with Eric Bieniemy. 
I might go with uh, Arthur Smith, who became the head coach of the Atlanta Falcons, the um, the uh, offensive coordinator formerly with the uh, Tennessee Titans. Might have looked at a couple of other folks before I went to a guy who's never coached in the NFL. But I, I guess in a situation like this, which is also interesting, is because I guess he's going to be more than just a head coach. Now, I'm not saying he's going to have the title of president of football operations or the GM or anything like that. But in listening to him talk and listening to some of the reasons why he wanted to get back into coaching was because, you know, he was interested in maybe building a culture and building a philosophy and this, that, and the other. Well, if you're going to be working with a GM, a lot of times the GM is going to be the one that's going to be shaping the culture and the philosophy. Now, the coach is going to have a big say in it, of course, but for me, a situation where the coach is going to be shaping the philosophy and the culture of the group, that mainly means, in the words of Bill Parcell, he's going to have the final say on what groceries are going to be purchased for him to cook the meal. But if you take a look at a Philadelphia Eagles situation, which just got rid of Doug Peterson, and it's a situation where Howie Roseman, the GM, is going to be the guy that's going to have the ultimate say on what groceries to purchase, and the coach is going to be responsible for making a Bobby Flay uh, type of meal, then that might be a little bit different. So it's going to be interesting because as of right now, Jacksonville does not have a general manager. In my next segment, I'll tell you a red flag about the Jacksonville Jaguars and the organization in terms of, you know what, maybe Eric Bieniemy should have, uh, shouldn't, maybe it's a good thing that Eric Bieniemy didn't accept the, or didn't um, uh, get the job. But uh, it'll be interesting to see moving forward with this team now that Urban Meyer is the head coach, how much sway, how much say he's going to have in what players the team is going to be drafting. Even though he was a college coach, he hadn't coached for two years. So, and I know he's been doing the Fox show and all that kind of good stuff, but, but still, he hasn't been part of college football for a couple of years in terms of being a head coach. So, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting. So, Meyer won three national championships, three national titles, titles I shall say, as a college head coach. He went 187-32 over 17 seasons in four different head coaching jobs. He had a eight. 54 winning percentage overall, and the only FBS coaches with at least 100 wins and a higher winning percentage are Newt Rockney, who I don't think ever coached in the pros, and Frank Leahy, both at Notre Dame. I think well, didn't Leahy coach at Leahy coach at Army? I don't I don't know. It was Notre Dame or Army, one of those two. But that was back in the that was back in the golden days. So you know, as far as modern coaches are concerned, as far as winning percentage is concerned, Meyer stands beyond reproach in that uh, in that situation. So. The only coaches with more victories in college who coach in the NFL are Nick Saban, Lou Holtz, and Steve Sperger. And we know how that went. So <laughs> Saban finished 15-17 and 17 with the Dolphins from 05 to 06 before taking the Alabama job. I think it turned out to be pretty good for him. And Lou Holtz finished with the um, 3-10 and 10 record with the New York Jets in 1976. Interesting story I read in The Ringer about college coaches going and getting an opportunity to coach in the pros, it was like midway through the season with the Jets, Holtz was like, you know what, man, this this shit ain't for me. I'm a I'm a college coach. I was born to coach college, and uh, as soon as this season is over, or the first chance I get, I'm getting the hell out of here. But then later on, he was like, you know what, I want to give it another shot because I've learned from my mistakes, and now I know that I should have treated these guys like, oh, I don't know, men instead of college kids, and, you know, kind of, give these guys a little bit more input into what we're doing. But by that time, his reputation in the NFL had been so tarnished that, um, no, nah, he was done with that. And, of course, Steve Spurrier 
with my Washington Snyderskins. He uh, coached that team from 02 to 03 before returning to coach at South Carolina. He finished 12 and 20, signed a five years, seven year, five years, $35 million contract. He couldn't wait to get out of that, get out of that gig. So I'll talk about that a little bit later on. So we'll see. But none of these guys has been as successful. Spurrier, Holtz, well, Saban, yeah. But uh, other than Saban, Holtz and Spurrier, I mean, they hadn't had the success winning championships as Urban Meyer did. But it's, it's, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting experiment. As a little flavor to Jacksonville, as a little flavor to uh, next season's NFL schedule and season. So the one red flag about Meyer being a successful coach in one major problem on why his partnership will be successful, I think, is because of his health problems. I mean, this is a guy who burns the candle at both ends. And you don't change who you are, especially when you're 56 and you have that type of winning and success. Now, you can sit there and, you know what, and, and convince yourself that, you know, look, I understand that I'm not going to have the success that I did in college. I understand that I'm not going to be winning 85% of my football games. I understand that I won't be having the ability to go ahead and do the recruiting and bring in the players that I really want to uh, bring in. I know that, I, I know that uh, there's a hard salary cap in the NFL while I could spend fruitfully as much as I wanted to in college that I could use uh, some perks shall we say to uh, bring in some recruits from college even though that might be bending the rules of the NCAA just a bit so um, you know all, all of those things come into play and like I said it's easy to say that now but when you're Jacksonville and you're one in six and <laughs> there seems to be no end in sight is Meyer who again when he won close games, would go fucking nuts mentally and all that type of stuff. That Jerry West complex in terms of being able to handle stress. Is he going to be able to uh, go ahead and continue to do what he's doing? He stepped down from Ohio State in December of 2018, the last time he's actually coached a game. He stepped down from uh, that gig, particularly because of health issues. He spent most of that season in pain on the sideline because of a cyst, which caused him aggressive headaches throughout the year. And, so, and, and then you have the situation where Ohio State suspended him for the first three games of the 2018 season for how he in, before he handled multiple accounts of domestic violence involving assistant coach Zach Smith. And the guy was like, well, you know, he was a great guy, and I knew his father, and blah, 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 and there was loyalty, and this, that, and the other. I mean, come on, man. I mean, you know, the guy's up there beating up his wife. Really? You're going to go down that route? I mean, this, you ain't in Columbus anymore. Where you'll have sycophants sitting there going, that's okay, as long as you beat Michigan, you can have an assistant that beats up women. Fine with us. You know, that shit ain't going to be flying in the NFL, especially the way they're cracking down on this stuff right now. Correctly so. So, all of these things, man, he's going to have to be dealing with. He told Yahoo Sports in 2018 when he was being asked about coaching in the NFL, he said that, quote, I could never work at a place. I see some of these guys' records because the NFL is so even. Some of these guys, their record is 74 and 58. I could never do that shit. If you're 74 and 58, you're doing well. Hell, if you're 16 games over 500, that's pretty damn good. So if he's going to be talking about losing his mind, something like that, um, <laughs> I don't know how this is going to work if you're Urban Meyer. So how long does he, how long does he plan on coaching here? Eventually, he's going to run himself ragged. The man is 56 years old. Eventually, he's going to, uh, you know. That's just the personality he is. He's not built. If he's going to be taking an NFL coaching job where 7458 can send you to a loony bin if you're not mentally strong enough to deal with this kind of nonsense, well, then how 
Urban Meyer, who's 56 now, how long can he coach? How long does he want to coach? I mean, we see guys like Pete Carroll and Bill Belichick, Bruce Arians. They're all over 65 and seem to be doing well. Carroll is going to be 70. Guy looks and acts like he's in his 50s. I wish I had that type of energy. Bill Belichick looks like he could coach for a couple of more years. Bruce Arians, I mean, these guys all look great for being NFL head coaches, all over 65. Mike Zimmer, as of right now, still the head coach at Minnesota. Andy Reid, Vic Fangio, they're all over 60. Uh, Ron Rivera, John Harbaugh, John Rudin, Frank Wright, Mike McCarthy, Sean Payton are all between the ages of 55 and 59 years old. Now, Rivera just went through cancer. But uh, he seems to be, all these guys for NFL head coaches seem to be looking good for their age. I mean, you look at these guys, as I mentioned before, Rivera and Harbaugh and Gruden and Wright. And you don't look at those guys and they're like, wow, those guys are only 50-something years old? They look like they're in their 70s. So, you know, it's, 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 it's going to be interesting. It's going to be very interesting. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. He spent seven years at Ohio State. Speaking about Meyer. Spent seven seasons at Ohio State, six seasons at Florida, two at Utah, one at Bowling Green. Young man at that time, I mean, for 17 seasons, he's taken a couple of years off and he's only 56 years old. I mean, he's still relatively a young guy who got into coaching a wonderkin, shall we say, for being as successful as he was at the age that he was. The worst record he's ever had in his coaching career is at Florida, 2007, where Physically, he just shut down because of the losing. He went 9-4 in 2007. And then 8-5 and five in 2010. I believe, I don't know what year it was. I think it might have been Tebow's last year, I think, where he he, called, he said he was going to retire. The pressure was too much. It was just getting too much for him. The, the, the responsibilities of winning all the time. So for Meyer, maybe the fact that, you know what, Jacksonville is not expecting this guy to go 16-0 and and win the championship in his first couple of years, maybe that'll take some of the uh, anxiety off of him. But then again, if you're sitting there 3-8, and 3-8, and it's still going to be 3-8. and eight. And when you come in with this hoopla, and you come in with, you know, Urban Meyer, Urban Meyer, yay, yay, Urban Meyer, and you're 3-8, and eight, I mean, very quickly, especially with the stigma of you being a college coach and only being a college coach, you don't give it as much leeway. I mean, you're treated more like a black coach, black head coach, uh, more than anything else in terms of you don't get, a, your, your, your leash is not as long if you were a guy who had coached in the NFL before. I mean, the quickly the narrative goes to, well, I mean, you know, obviously as we see now, because this guy's record is 4-11 and 11 or 3-12, and 12, we, we, we see now that this guy was, was made for college. And all of a sudden now you start, Coming up with the well, when is his health going to start to break down and all this, all this, all this rigmarole? So, I don't think his, I don't think his experiment, or I don't think this experiment is going to get the shelf life that it could possibly get if Jacksonville doesn't jump out the gate quickly. And when I mean quickly, I'm talking about if those guys aren't at least twelve games into the season, those guys aren't at least. Jacksonville was one and fifteen last year. They're not at least five and seven. Uh, five and seven might be a little bold there, but if they're not at least four and eight or five and seven somewhere around there, I mean those uh, rumors or those uh, complaints are going to start getting louder and louder and louder and louder about uh, what is Jacksonville doing here, especially the some of these coaches that were hired this year. I know the uh, New York Jets. Hire the San Francisco 49er defensive end, uh, defensive coordinator Robert Slayeth. Um, 
The Falcons, as I mentioned before, hired the offensive coordinator for the Tennessee Titans. So if some of these coaches who are going to get hired and they come out and they start doing well, and here we have Jacksonville, who whose organization or the um, situation in terms of what job what you want, what job opening is the most attractive outside of the uh, Los Angeles Chargers. And basically with Jacksonville, with the number one pick with the ability to uh, work with Trevor Lawrence, I mean, that right there is an invitation for a lot of really good candidates to get that job. And if you go this with Urban Meyer, and he's starting to get out the gate slow when you could have had Arthur Smith or Eric Bieniemy or one of those guys, I mean, it's going to even look even worse for Urban Meyer. So we'll see. We'll see. Wendell's World in Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So... We're speaking about, or I'm speaking about Urban Meyer. Wanting to come back. Coaching Jacksonville. All right. All right. And these are the questions that I ask. Number one, how long would he anticipate coaching? I know he's going to sit there and be like, well, man, I don't know. Shit. I mean, you know, realistically, if everything goes perfectly, as far as health-wise is concerned, how long do you want to coach? Are, are we speaking about five years, 10 years? Are you looking to coach into your 70s? I mean, what, what's going on here? And, I, and like I said, I'm quite sure his answer would be like, I don't know, man, I'm taking this shit one day at a time. So I can't give you that answer. But physically, do you feel like you could handle this job until in, in your early 60s or mid-60s or eight years, nine years, 10 years? Now, and of course, a lot of things go into that other than just your health record-wise and, and everything else. So that's one of the things that I'm interested in because the most he's ever spent at a school is seven years, Ohio State. So if he spent eight years in Jacksonville, number one, he would be one of the longest-tenured coaches in the NFL. If he did spend eight years in the NFL, that m- must mean that he would have some really good success. And when I'm talking about really good success, if you're going to be spending eight years in a in one situation outside of Cincinnati – then you're either going to be in an NFC or you're either going to be in a conference championship game, go to a Super Bowl, win a Super Bowl or something like that. There's not too many organizations out there that will keep you around for eight years if you haven't at least made the conference championship. So, again, depending upon the other coaches, what they do, the coaches who were hired this offseason by NFL teams, depends upon what they do, if... Arthur Smith is leading the Jets to conference championships and Super Bowl appearances and division titles and the Jaguars are finishing nine and seven and eight and eight every single year, then Urban Meyer ain't going to be sticking around for eight years. That that uh, relationship will end far before then. So all of these things go into play when the question is asked, how long do you want to coach or how long do you think you can coach or that type of thing. So that's one deal. My other deal that I would ask him would be, Man, what are your reasons for wanting to coach in the NFL? Are you doing it out of curiosity? Are you doing it because you really want to go ahead and be an NFL head coach? It's always been a dream of yours. Are you doing it to, you know, wanting to scratch an itch? Are you bored? I mean, what, do you want a new challenge? I mean, what what exactly are the reasons why? Because the best coaches in the league today are those who paid their dues and climbed the ladder in the league to become an NFL head coach, and especially the way that the league is trending toward younger head coaches and these young young uh, young bucks who are coming in and they're sometimes mid-30s late 30s early 40s Sean McVay set the precedent to where you know what there's not you don't have to be 
a guy who's in his early 50s to uh, be able to uh, be able to coach a football team and be able to coach these guys. You can actually have a guy whose age is comparable to the players that you're coaching and you can still be successful and you can still garner their respect and you can still have the ultimate success of Sean McVay opening up plenty of doors for uh, um, that type of deal. If you take a look at the hires in Chicago and in Green Bay and in Cincinnati, these guys from the Sean McVay tree, all of these guys are young offensive coordinating white charismatic guys. So that's kind of like the trend toward what's happening. Now, Carolina last season um, hired Matt Rule to be their coach, but for the most part, I mean, you still have guys like the coach for Ohio, not Ohio. Yeah, Ryan Day, Ryan, Ryan Day has name has been mentioned when, you know, you speak of possible coaches making that move to the NFL. All those guys have been relatively young, even as far as the coaching in college is concerned. Matt Campbell, the coach at Ohio State, he's relatively young. He's a guy that gets a lot of uh, buzz about possibly being a good NFL head coach. Pat Fitzgerald. The head coach at Northwestern, here's another guy who once again gets a lot of buzz about, you know, he would be good as an NFL head coach and that he, if he wanted the opportunity that he would uh, get a serious look at being a head coach in the league. Mentioned before, uh, Lincoln Riley, a guy out of, uh, a guy out of uh, Oklahoma. I'm quite sure if the Cowboys have another faltering season that uh, if Lincoln Riley's agent called Jerry Jones and was like, you know what, I ain't advocating, I ain't advocating the the firing or dismissal of a coach. But if you do, Lincoln would be interested if that situation never came about. So it would, you know, that, that would be Lincoln Riley's name is out there. So, you know, there's a lot of these young coaches or these college coaches, if you're going to be making that jump, the NFL wants them young. And for a guy without any head coaching experience, playing experience, assistant coaching, anything, Front office experience, Urban Meyer has nothing in terms of experience in the NFL. And with his age and with his history of physical health, risky. Risk it, no biscuit, <laughs> as far as the coaching is concerned. Mikhail Shanahan is 41 years old. You take a look at some of the better head coaches in this league. Yeah, you have the Andy Reeds and, of course, Bill Belichick. It's a standard barrier. But, man, these young, these young cats coming in are uh, making a name for themselves. You speak about someone like, and for me, when you're speaking about me, I'm 51 years old. So, you know, it's a relative term when I'm speaking about young guys. Someone who's listening to this podcast who's 28 years old talking about Kyle Shanahan being young at 41, really? You're going there with that? But for my generation, if they're speaking about young head coaches, these guys who are doing well, like Shanahan, Kyle Shanahan, and, and Matt LaFleur, and Sean McVay, and Kevin Stefanski, and... Um, Brian Flores and Sean McDermott. I mean, these guys are 46 years old. Speaking of McDermott, Flores is 39, McVay is 34, Stefanski's 38, Sal Shanahan is 41. 15 years ago, you didn't see coaches that age becoming head coaches. They would be deemed that they weren't uh, experienced enough. They weren't ready enough. But Shanahan's been working in the NFL for 17 years. So we're speaking about a guy, and you can talk about nepotism with his father, uh, him being the son of Mike Shanahan. But yeah, is anybody going to be doubting the offensive wizardry of Cal Shanahan? So he's worked in the NFL for, since he was 24 years old, 17 years. Started off as a offensive quality control coach for Tampa Bay. He's coached the wide receivers, the quarterback. He was the offensive coordinator for Houston, Washington, Atlanta, Cleveland. So he's gotten some work there. Kevin Stefanski, 38 years old. 
He's worked in the NFL for 15 years, 14 of them with Minnesota. Assistant quarterback coach, assistant to the head coach, tight ends, running back, quarterback coach, offensive coordinator for the Vikings, Sean McVay. You all know about his resume. He was working in the NFL since he was 13 years old. He, he really is a wonderkin. I mean, as far as age groups are concerned, he really is the Beethoven of the, uh, or he really is the Mozart of the uh, NFL in terms of his prodigious talent at such a young age. So he worked as the offensive offensive assistant for Tampa Bay, Washington. He was the tight ends coach, the offensive coordinator when he was about 16 years old. So he's been doing work. Brian Flores, 39 years old. He's worked in the NFL for 13 years. He's one of the, I mean, until the near end of the season, he was in strong consideration for uh, coach of the year and the job that he's done in Miami, speeding up that uh, revitalization, uh, you know, speeding up the uh, uh, rebuilding and the rebirth of that organization has been remarkable. I mean, he was a New England special team assistant, special teams coach, defensive, defensive assistant, linebacker coach, safety coach. I mean, this guy did, wasn't even a coordinator. And he's shown that he's more than capable of being a fine NFL head coach. Sean McDermott, who I think should be the coach of the year, either him or Stefanski. He's been in the NFL for 21 years. He was the Philadelphia Eagles assistant head coach, defensive assistant, quality coach, assistant defensive backs coach, secondary coach, linebacker coach. He was the defensive coordinator for Carolina for five years until he got his shot. So... Everything that I'm saying is that, you know, Meyer is going to also be going against the trend. He's going to try to buck a trend in terms of what the NFL is looking for, not just in terms of age, but also in terms of experience. Because again, Urban Meyer, yeah, he's been a head coach in college, but he hasn't done jack shit diddly in the NFL. Wasn't a quality assistant coach, wasn't a position coach, hadn't worked in the front office, didn't go door to door and try to sell tickets. He wasn't working in public relations. He hadn't done anything. As far as NFL is concerned. And now he's going to be in charge of the uh, Jacksonville Jaguars organization. Not saying he's going to fail. I don't know. I don't know. It's an interesting experiment that's going to be going on. And Urban Meyer is so successful. And ever since he's been on the beach in terms of coaching is concerned, he said that he's you know picked the brain of very successful CEOs and leaders and and, and players who have played for him who are now in the NFL. And so he's done his homework. He's done his due diligence. But it's a whole new different uh, set of circumstances when you're actually in the line of fire. You can be an assistant coach all you want to and be the greatest assistant coach of all time. The six inches between being an assistant coach or the six inches between the chair between the assistant and the head coach are miles and miles apart in terms of the responsibilities and the uh, things that you're in control of. So that's Urban Meyer. That's Urban Meyer. Chip Kelly, hey, he went in there, tried to be. You remember when Chip Kelly, speaking of college coaches, trying to do their thing in the NFL? Because Urban Meyer was this guy who was um, the first guy to embrace a more wide open offense and, you know, everything that he brought to the college game changed the entire SEC. I don't think Nick Saban ever leaves the ground and pound three yards in a cloud of dust and the quarterback being the game manager if Urban Meyer didn't come into town in Florida with Chris Leak. He inherited Chris Leak and brought in Tim Tebow and those guys and basically changed the way that the uh, teams in the SEC had to play. Uh, so he he was responsible for 
Nick Saban's success because Nick Saban found out that if I'm going to be playing against this offense, that uh, I'm not going to be beating these guys 14 to 10 and 17 to 14 all the time. I need to go ahead and uh, upgrade my offense. You know, he he uh, accelerated the dismissal of Les Miles because Les Miles, who was a Bo Schembechler disciple, was still doing that old, you know, bullshit from the 1970s, running the football and not having a good quarterback, despite being in a talent-rich state of Louisiana where the skill players at the quarterback and the running back position and, and wide receiver position and tight end position should have had him been should have had him passing the ball all over the yard, but you know, less was being uh less, so less is no more. So he was gone. So you know, we see Urban Meyer bringing in this whole new way of coaching and new way of offense and everything, and he's kind of banking on that to be successful in the NFL. Well, didn't we already go down that road with Chip Kelly, the guy from Oregon with the fast paced offense and the no huddle offense and you know, you only practice a certain amount of time and you get eight hours of sleep and this is the way you eat and this is the way you train and all this kind of nonsense. Didn't, didn't, wasn't Chip Kelly supposed to change the way that the NFL was played and the way coaches were supposed to coach, that he was going to bring in a whole new way of life? Well, after you know, establishing himself as an offensive guru and mastermind at Oregon, Kelly, who was just dying to get, he, that man was dying to get out of college. He would have taken any pro job to get out of there. But he went to the uh, Philadelphia Eagles in 2013. And hey, you know, the first couple of years were great. He went 6-10. and 10, Oh, excuse me. He went 10-6, and six, made the playoffs his first season. Everybody was like, wow, this is something else. But, you know, unfortunately, the <laughs> run and shoot or the fast pace or the, you know, run them the hell offense was kind of like these these guys were like, hey, man, you know, you're, you're, you're wearing us out. And if you're going to go out there and run a no huddle and you're going to be three and out, the defense, you're going you're gonna to wear out the defense and all that type of stuff. So, you know, basically the Eagles missed the playoffs the next season and then Kelly was fired after a 6 and nine start in 2015. And then he was hired by the 49ers in 2016. But they went 2-14 and 14 his first season and basically he was done. Now he's sort of off the grid off Broadway trying to revitalize the UCLA program. Mike Riley was a guy, gone 8-14 and 14 in two seasons in Oregon State before being hired as the head coach by the then San Diego Chargers. Don't ask me why. Hiring came after the first disastrous season with Ryan Leaf at the quarterback, so maybe he was brought in to assage and mature and to mentor and to make a quarterback out of Ryan Leaf. Well, that didn't work. San Diego improved the 8-8 eight and eight in 1999. They didn't go out and party like it was 1999, but they went 8-8 eight and eight like it was 1999. But then they went 1-15 in 2000. And then after going 5-11 and 11 in 2001, the Spanos were like, yeah, sorry, man, you got to go. Were the Spanos were in charge of that? Somebody, oh, yes, the Spanos were only that team. They were like, yeah, man, you got to go. Steve Spurrier of the Washington Snyder Skins. I mean, here's a guy, you know, came in and was like, yeah, I don't understand why these guys are working so hard. I'm just going to come in here. I'm going to play a little golf. I'll put in six to eight hours a day. Ooh, just kind of like I did in Florida. You know, you have this guy for uh, the New Orleans Saints. <laughs> he spends, what, 23 hours a day, seven days a week in his film room and in his office trying to put together game plans. Ooh, not me. I'm Steve Spurrier. Ooh, I'm a super genius. Ooh. I'll just come in and, uh, you know, I can handle this, no problem. Y'all see what I did in Florida? Well, you know, how'd that work out for you, Steve? Brought most of his coaching staff from Gainesville, even though they had a little NFL experience. 
They brought in Danny Warfel and Chris Doring. Yeah, I'll just uh, replicate what I did in the NFL when I did in Florida. Ugh. Okay. Mm-hmm. This, Steve Spurrier played in the NFL. He played for the Buccaneers as a quarterback and a punter. I mean, he should have known that shit wasn't going to work. So the first year with the funny gun offense, right? Finished 7-9, and nine, 25th in scoring, Mr. Super Mastermind, Mr. Super Genius in terms of that nonsense. Then Washington went 5-11 in 2003, and they were like, yeah, time to go. Time to bail. Because guess what, Steve? There's a reason why these guys spend 18 to 23 hours a day studying film and putting together game plans and doing all that kind of stuff. Because in the NFL, it's all about parity. And when you're at Florida, yeah, you can go ahead and out of the 12 games that you play, you can win nine of those games just based on talent alone. Yeah, so when you have the type of talent that you had at Florida, and you're out there playing the Florida A&Ms, and you're out there playing the uh, Vanderbilts, and you're out there playing the Mississippis and the Mississippi States, yeah, you can step on the field with the talent you got, roll the football out there, and win a game 56-7. to But guess what? When you're in the NFL, and you're playing the New York Giants, and because of your fun and gun offense, you're going to have a tight end trying to go one-on-one in terms of uh, blocking a Michael Strahan and his prime? Guess what's going to happen? When you have a guy in Danny Warfel who can't make any of the NFL throws and makes Drew Brees nimble, you know, look like he's Michael Vick, guess what's going to happen? You ain't going to win football games. You ain't going to be successful. So that was the deal. The jury's still out on Cliff Kingsbury, but that offense he's running in Arizona, you're going to get Kyler Murray killed if you keep doing that stuff. Matt Rule, I mean, he runs a more traditional offense and runs a more traditional type of NFL-based philosophy, but, you know, I don't... These college coaches, man, who come in, think the shit don't stink. I'm not saying that that's Urban Meyer's position, but history shows us, and I'm not even going back to Bud Wilkinson with the Cardinals or Lou Holtz with the... um, with the Jets or Bobby Petrino with the Atlanta Falcons. I'm, I'm not even talking about those. I mean, you want me to keep going of college coaches who just didn't get it done. I mean, there's a lot of them. And don't be sitting there talking about Pete Carroll. Pete Carroll was a coach in the NFL first with New England and the Jets before he came back and uh, and uh, became a coach in Seattle after building that dynasty in USC. He was just... He just got the job at USC because he needed the paycheck and he loved coaching. And he turned out that uh, he was really good at coaching in the college game. But ultimately, that shit was kind of like, yeah, you know, I'm 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 ready for, to get back into uh, I'm ready to get back into the pros. So the, the, you have to have some type of pro experience, in my opinion. And Urban Meyer doesn't have any, and he's talking about you know bringing in coordinators. From college, you better make sure that you get multiple coordinators who've had the head coaching experience on your staff for the first two years until you finally get the hang of things. But we'll see. We'll see. Meyer has no NFL head coaching experience. (laughs) We'll see if this is going to work. I don't know. If it is, it'll be an outlier. But uh, I don't know. I guess based on your success from college, if anybody's going to make it work, you could say, well, you know, if Saban didn't make it work, how am I? Okay, well, we'll, we'll see. Urban Meyer, coach at Jacksonville. We will see. We will see. We'll see. A little song I like that says, May the Lord. 
Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get down on. A lot of things to discuss in the world of sports. Special dedication for this podcast. The day, the birth of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. January 15th. We'll be celebrating his birthday this Monday, January 18th. But uh, for me, I like to celebrate in terms of when the man actually was born. So this podcast is going to be dedicated to his memory, as I've already ripped apart Kyrie Irving and Floyd Mayweather Jr. and <laughs> Irving Meyer's chances of going back to the NFL. Yes, that's what Dr. King would have wanted here. But I'm doing it in a non-violent way. I'm not saying that Kyrie Irving needs to be beaten because he decided that uh, he wants to uh, dance to his own tune. I'm not saying that some violence should happen because Floyd Mayweather is a horrible human being from what I know of him. I'm not saying that Urban Meyer somehow, way, should be facing the firing squad and should be tarred and feathered because his chances, I believe, of being successful are not in his favor. I'm not saying any of that. So I am sticking with the principles of the great Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. where I'm saying that all men, Black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, folks from all over the globe need to get together and come together as one. And we should cheer and we should celebrate and we should pray for the hearts and for the souls and for the beings of those who are going to be taking upon this task of trying to improve their basketball team, of taking upon the task of trying to improve the Jacksonville Jaguars, of taking upon the task of making sure that the Brooklyn Nets try to win a championship in the next couple of years, of taking upon the task that the Houston Rockets can turn things around despite losing the presence of their all-time great player James Harden. We need to come together, my brothers and sisters, as one with unity and nonviolence and love and harmony and wish these people the best in what they can do. And in proving so, and in doing so, we together, through our support, through our love, through everything that we have, positive and non-violence, for the success of their missions, that we together, as a group, as a world, harmonize, humanize the human spirit as one. Amen, my brothers and sisters. I said, can I get an amen, my brothers and sisters? Lord have Jesus, have mercy. Wendell's World of Sports, there you go, see? That's my uh, thing from Martin Luther King Jr., Wendell's World, there you go. <laughs> Jesus! Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. Okay, the um, situation that I'm speaking about to you with, the Jacksonville Jaguars, spoke, spoke about Urban Meyer and them hiring the guy and everything. One of the major problems facing the Jacksonville Jaguars community, fan base, fan club, is uh, the owner, Shad Khan, 
He said that he's going to continue to hold the team's roster control in the near future. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, God, please don't say that. But Khan told his reporters on a Zoom call a few weeks ago, he said that last season, especially after Tom's departure, speaking about Tom Coughlin, he had lost control. We had lost control, so I kept the roster control. The general manager candidates, they've been talking to them and told them for the immediate future, I'm going to keep the roster control. I want the coach to know that also. Oh, no, 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 please. No, 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 please. No, 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 no. So this guy is going to try to be the Jerry Jones of, uh, the Jerry Jones of Jacksonville. How's that worked out for Jerry Jones in terms of him being the GM and the owner of the squad? How many Super Bowls have they won? Okay. How many Super Bowls have they made it to? Okay. How many championship, division championship games have they gotten to? Okay. Okay. How many times have they won the division? Okay. All right. All right. How many times have we said next year, next year, next year, it's all about next year? Okay. All right. How many potential coaches have declined to work for Dallas under that circumstance? Coaches that possibly could have turned Dallas around and made them elite franchises, made them contenders for championships? Okay. All right. Okay. How long did he keep Jason Garrett around him, Jerry Jones being the owner and the GM, the decision maker? Okay. All right. Okay. How long past the expiration date did Jerry Jones keep Wade Phillips at the coach of the Cowboys? Okay. All right. Fine. How many, Jerry Jones bringing in Terrell Owens, was that the decision of Jones, the owner, or Jones, the GM? In fact, how did that work with uh, Owens being the uh, wide receiver for the Cowboys? Okay. All right. All right. All right. Hey, Jacksonville is the best job opening in the NFL right now. They've got 11 total picks in the upcoming draft, multiple first-round picks, close to $100 million in salary cap space. They have the number one pick, so in all, unless unless someone is a, is a complete another fool, uh, they're going to be um, drafting Trevor Lawrence with the number one pick, and Trevor Lawrence is supposed to be a generational great. <sighs> come on, man. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. If you're Sean Khan, come on, man. It's about time that you get serious. If you can go ahead and get yourself, put yourself in the position where, hey, you know what? We've got a really good thing going here in terms of the future. We've got a cupboard that's bare, and we've got all of this to work with. Do you know how many GMs would love to be in that position? I already mentioned the fact in the NBA with Raphael Stone and really um, general managers in general in that league, if you ask them, what would you rather have in terms of, uh, you know, rebuilding a program? All of these guys would say, man, I want multiple picks and I want a lot of salary uh, cap space to go ahead and do my thing. Well, you've got that in Jacksonville, even with a hard salary cap. Now, Jacksonville isn't the same as far as a free agent destination as a Los Angeles or one of the bigger markets. But still, you're talking about the state of Florida, which has no income uh, state tax. You're speaking about you know a situation where you're going to be working with a generational great quarterback, possibly, hopefully. I mean, there's a lot of things you have a really you have some really good young talent on that team. Not a lot because the team went one and fifteen, but there's there's some ambers within the uh, within the, the the fire that you could uh, that you can work with. I mean, it should be a very attractive job for a GM. But if a GM of any worth, of any you know, of, of any uh, Worth is going to go in there and you're going to be talking about, yeah, I'm going to be in charge of, you know, the roster. 
I mean, come on, man. I mean, you know, the next Bill Polian or the next Ron Wolf is not going to be like, yeah, that sounds pretty good. And then, since you already hired the coach, you got to make sure then that the coach and the general manager, president of football operations are together as one as far as the philosophy is concerned. And we don't know what Urban Meyer's philosophy is because, well, he's never coached, uh, he's never coached in the NFL. So he might have a philosophy and all this kind of stuff. What is it based off of? It can't be based off what you did in college because college and the NFL are completely different animals. Yeah, you might have a philosophy of how you deal with people in college. Guess what? When you're dealing with people in college, they're 18 to 22 years old. When you're going to be, it's a lot different, of course, and you know this common sense will tell you, it's a lot different dealing with grown men who have mortgages, who are building their brands, who have kids, who have other responsibilities. It's a lot different in the way you uh, work with them. Sure, in a college situation, you are the de facto, uh, you are the, you are the kingmaker. You are the guy. You are the, when I say jump, you answer how high. When I say run through that brick wall, put your head down and go, go, go through that brick wall. Yeah, in, in college, you can get away with that stuff. In the NFL, it's not, you're not coach employee. I mean, this isn't supervisor employee. You're, you're working together. This is a collective understanding in terms of where we're going. So yeah, you can have a philosophy and you can have, you can try to find players that are going to fit that philosophy. But how rigid is that philosophy going to be if you're Urban Meyer? In college, where you can go ahead and you can recruit anybody who you want to, and you can text and you can call and you can do all these things and you can, you know, go ahead and and, and develop a relationship over years. So you can even have a better understanding if this young man is going to be able to fit the philosophy that you have in college. You can do that shit. In the NFL, you can't. In the NFL, is a business. And if you're speaking about philosophy, you better think about the philosophy of winning. Because Herm Edwards used to do all that bullshit about, yeah, you know, I'm going to, you know, I bring these young men into the league and, you know, these guys are young and some of these come from underprivileged backgrounds and these guys never have a checking account before and these guys don't know how to do this and these guys don't know how to do that. So for me, as a coach, especially being a black coach with these black kids coming into the NFL, coming in basically as kids, even though they're 21, 22 years old, I feel it's a responsibility for me to show them the ways of life and to show them how to do things and the have them grow and have them mature so by the time that they retire that they'll be able to have a foundation for them to be successful once football is over. Yeah, Herm, that's fantastic in college. That's fantastic in high school. But man, no one gives a fuck about that bullshit in the NFL. Can you beat teams? What is your win-loss record? Man, this ain't fucking Betty Betty Ford, okay? This ain't no damn halfway house. This ain't Dr. Drew. I don't need that bullshit. How many games can you win? How many... Times can you get us to the playoffs? How many times can you get us to a Super Bowl? What these guys do when they're off, off season and off the field and what they're gone, I don't give a fuck about what they do as long as they can help us win. So, you know, this, this philosophy stuff for Urban Meyer, it'd be interesting to hear exactly what his philosophy is. And Sean Conn, I'm quite sure, I, I guess he hired him. So I guess it had to do something with football. So, I mean, you know. Everybody has the philosophy in terms of wanting to win a year the NFL. You know, you have to go ahead and find players to do that, and you also have to find talent to do that. You can find the most philosophized players in the world. If they don't have any talent, they're going to get you fired. You know, you can work hard, and they're good people, and all that kind of stuff. Man, fuck that bullshit. Can you win, man? This is this, you see the society that we're living in right now. 
You see the time that we're living in right now? You see the bullshit that happened on Wednesday? Man, ain't nobody interested in bringing in choir boys. Ain't nobody interested in bringing in people who are going to change the world for the better on a football team. Fuck that, man. Can you win or can you lose? Can you help me win money on bets? Can you help me win my parlay bets? Can you help me win my fantasy uh, league? That's what I'm fucking interested in. So your philosophy better be dealing with some really talented players who can hopefully stick around long enough to uh, uh, you know, win a championship because that's the only philosophy I'm going to be hearing. So there you go, man. The Jaguars, and look, they're a team that's made three AFC title games. You know, they, they, they haven't been around like the Bears. I mean, this ain't the Bears, the Packers. This ain't a legacy franchise. They came in in the mid-90s. So the fact that they made three... AFC championships or the fact that they made three divisional championship games, conference championship games, pretty remarkable. On the other hand, if they're not doing that type of thing, they, they flat out stink. <laughs> so they've been to the AFC title game three times, lost all of them, and outside of that, they've had one winning season in the past 13. And they've been one of the worst franchises the past couple of years after making it to the AFC championship game and playing very competitive against Tom Brady and the New England Patriots on the road. Ever since then, they've been downright awful. So, I mean, you know, this isn't, you know, the, the, Jacksonville is one of the rare NFL markets where the community just doesn't live and breathe and die by what happens with their football team. So, you, you can, you're not going to be still generating a lot of interest if this team is 4 and 12, 5 and 11, 4 and 12 and 3 and 13 after 4 or 5 years. But Urban Meyer is sitting up there talking about my philosophy. You know, whatever, man. You know, so you know, number 1, they're not going to be happy with the coach and number 2, they're going to be even more unhappy with the owner who said that this was a okay to circumvent the Rooney rule because he really had no interest in hiring a minority. So he was in he was in cahoots and he was walking, uh, talking and working with Meyer concerning this, even when Doug Marone was still coaching the team. Now, look, Doug Marone was not going to keep his job. So when you're 1 in 10, 1 in 11, everyone sees the writing on the wall. So I, in that regard, I, I don't blame the owner for, you know, talking about, hey, man, go out there and let's start, you know, getting together and seeing who's what and who's who. You know, Rooney rule or not. So I, I, I get that. I, I kind of understand that. But, I mean, you know, a college coach, again, and you're going to be the person that's going to be in charge of the roster? Man, I don't know. If I'm Jacksonville, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit leery. I'm a little bit leery of this situation. Look, you've got a great situation. Khan is interested in winning. He's not, and he's not Daniel Snyder. So, I mean, there's something to work with here. So there's got to be some general manager worth his salt that says, when I go into this meeting, I'm going to have to let him know, hey, man, you know, you can have input. I mean, I'm not saying you should be an absentee owner concerning this, but um, the final say in this matter has to be mine. I mean, Con, we, we've tried it your way. It ain't working. How's your win-loss record? Ain't working. Now, I know Urban, and when I sat down and we had a good chat and this, that, and the other, we, we seem to be on the same page, but we have to go ahead and uh, make it be known that, you know, we're, we're going to be putting this thing together, and, you know, we'll definitely, I mean, you're the one 
writing the checks. So, of course, we're going to, you know, fill you in and let you know what we're doing. And if you want to have a little, you know, question and answer meeting, that's fine. But the fact that you're going to be sitting up there trying to be Jerry Jones, you know, the Middle Eastern Jerry Jones, ain't happening. So, for the betterment of the team, Mr. Khan, for the betterment of the community, Mr. Khan, for the betterment of the franchise, Mr. Khan, for the betterment for the betterment of your the value of your team, Mr. Khan. Please, man, let the guys who know what they're doing do their job. You got a head coach, you go ahead and get yourself a GM and let them do their job. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted. Every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain. And the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is the faith that I go back to the south with. With this faith. We will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. The last segment of the podcast. So let's get everything. Let's get ready to go. Get your book bags. Get everything packed. Pencils, pens, papers. Everything you can get. Make sure your Chromebooks are in the right place. Let's go ahead. Put the stuff away. Put your shit away. Put the pencil away. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Because I'm going to be talking about the uh, men's basketball situation at Kentucky. These guys kneeling. And I want your undervalued attention. So... Put away the books. Put them underneath your desk, please. Let's go. Let's go. Move it. Move it. There you go. Everybody good? Everybody ready? Everybody focused? Eyes up here. Good. Here we go. All right. University of Kentucky men's basketball players kneeling before the start of a game against Florida this past uh, weekend. The Kentucky players were, uh, of course, a little bit disturbed about what happened at the Capitol on Wednesday when it faced insurrection from a bunch of uh, domestic terrorist thugs. So they wanted to uh, go ahead, especially from the Kentucky standpoint, again, to take the kneel and let everybody know that not only was the insurrection wrong, the fact that if it was someone who were, uh, if it was a group of people who looked like them, mainly black, or part of a group that was 
doing it for reasons such as improving the lives of black folks and others, that there would be no way on God's green earth that uh, a situation like that would have happened to where they would be able to cause such mayhem and disarray and destruction within the uh, Capitol building. And the fact that it looked like it was an inside job makes it even more heinous. But, uh, you know, for a group of people who are used to uh, this type of uh, treatment and everything, not not superly surprising, sad, but not really surprising. So they wanted to go ahead and take a kneel, uh, take a, um, uh, a kneel, kneel during the national anthem. Just to let them know, uh, just to let people know what they're think, thinking and what they're feeling and exercising their First Amendment rights to protest in a very peaceful way. They didn't come out with basketballs and start firing up people and, 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 and taking the rims and causing destructions. Now, that would be, you know, part of the uh, MAGA, MAGA group. No, but these are, this was just a peaceful protest. So, the Kentucky players said that they discussed their decision to kneel with John Calipari, the coach of the team, before Saturday's game against Florida. And Calipari summoned several of them to ask, you know, why are you doing this? What's happening? What do you have planned? And the team told them that they're going to kneel. And they asked the coaches if they could uh, join them. So Calipari was like, yeah, those are my guys. So I'll, I'll go ahead and do that. So the, the, the staff, including Calipari, kneeled with the players during the, uh, during the anthem. And Calipari still held his hand over his heart while the song was being played, but he joined in the display of um, uh, protesting uh, nonviolently with that. So one Florida player, Scotty Lewis, also took a knee during the anthem. He was the only player for Florida to go ahead and join Kentucky in that symbol in in the the kneeling. So what uh, forward uh, Keon Brooks said after the game, he was like, look, there's a lot of stuff that goes on every day that we knelt for. The Capitol, that stuff had a part to play in it. But there are some things, some other things that we don't see that go on every day that are unacceptable and that we want to take a stand against. The privilege, the tolerance, the ignorance, of course, when hearing that made their presence felt. Of course, you know, we're we're speaking about Kentucky. I mean, this is a state that's stupid enough to reelect Mitch McConnell again. So we're not talking about a group of people who are very smart. So, of course, those jackasses and idiots and intolerant and white privileged fools lost their mind. I'm quite sure there were other groups of people, you know, black and Hispanics and others in the state who also found fault with uh, what the uh, Kentucky players and Coach Calipari were doing. So, you know, I mean, don't don't muzzle the stupid. They're allowed to speak, too. That's what the First Amendment allows, that even the uneducated and dumb get allowed to speak. So, of course, they did. So Laurel County Sheriff John Root, this is what this jackass did. He lit a Kentucky t-shirt on fire, and he did it alongside county jailer Jamie Mosley on Sunday in a since-deleted Facebook post that followed up a demand that the head coach, John Calipari, be fired. I live in the stupidest country in our planet. I live on the stupidest country in the planet. I don't even know if that's correct. So the video begins. He says, I'm Sheriff John Root here with my good friend, ba- uh, Jailer Jamie Mosley. And we're kind of discussing the outrage last night of the Kentucky University of Kentucky Wildcats. That disrespect our, our American flag and our national anthem. Jesus Christ. Fucking idiots. As he threw the shirt in, the Sheriff Root said... And this is what I think about the program, coach. Until you can get these guys under control and lead by example, here's my shirt. And he threw it into the, uh, 
he threw it into the uh, fire pit. Oh, a, oh boy, I'm quite sure that the uh, I'm quite sure that the Kentucky players are already second guessing their decision after seeing that display. Later, Jalen Mosley threw in his own shirt. He threw his own shirt in, and he made an offer to the people of Laurel County. He said that uh, if you bring your, your UK shirt or gear to the Laurel County Detention Center on Monday, the first 100 will receive a back-the-badge shirt in exchange. The shirt is in support of first responders. It mostly said, so if you feel the same way that we do, and you've got some shirts that you no longer want, bring those to the jail tomorrow. And he said that the remaining shirts will go to people in the homeless shelter or in need. God, you fucking morons. I, You know, they did the same thing. These, these fucking idiots uh, did the same thing when they were burning the NFL jerseys and their jackets and all this kind of stuff. Where these idiots put their nonsense on, on, on social media. Like, you know, like those guys are just going to be like, wow, you guys are so fucking cool. I bet your dicks are really big. You know, th- that type of display. Why don't you fucking idiots do this? Instead of showing your disgust for players who kneel that you're going to burn their 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 merchandise or their, their, their clothing, why don't you fucking idiots instead bring them down to a homeless shelter? Why don't you bring them down to a Goodwill? Why don't you, you know, I don't know, drive down to a poor area in the community and find some people who might need some of this shit and give it to them. Instead of your fucking asses being stupid enough to burn it on on um, social media and destroy this stuff. If you're really that American and all that kind of stupidity, show go down to um, go out go down to a place that's uh, dealing with you know those who have fought in war and are uh, you know feeling the effects of you know post uh, traumatic uh, depression and all this kind of stuff that comes with war. I mean, some veterans who are down on their luck and who are homeless and all those type of things. Instead of you idiots burning your jerseys and burning your merchandise, why don't you fucking morons take it to them? You know, people who serve uh, for this country. I saw these people in Pittsburgh do that. It's like, you're burning their jackets. It's like, damn, really, in Pittsburgh? I mean, the last time I checked, the weather in Pittsburgh in December and January and February does not equate the weather in Honolulu. Instead of you fucking idiots burning your shit, why don't you go ahead, take it down to a place where they serve veterans or serve the homeless or serve somebody and say, hey, look, you know what? These guys and for the Pittsburgh Steelers, they were kneeling and they were doing all this type of stuff and we vehemently disagree with that. So because of that, we are no longer supporting this team and we're no longer going to be wearing their merchandise and we're no longer going to be wearing their paraphernalia, their clothing. So we don't want it. Do you guys want it? And I'm quite sure those folks down there would be hell fuck yeah because we have... Many, many people, men, women, and children who can find great use of this stuff. But no, you idiots want to go ahead and burn it. You fucking stupid, inbreed, low-life, clown-ass motherfuckers want to go ahead and do that stuff. So at always just burn me up. Colin Kaepernick is not American. Colin Kaepernick hates this country. Colin Kaepernick doesn't give a shit about the military. Meanwhile, you're burning your clothing instead of showing your patriotism and your concern with others and instead giving it away to somebody in, who is in, in need of it. Unflipping believable. So, you know, so, the, so, so Andy Griffin and Barney Fife down in Laurel County decided they, they were going to burn the UK jerseys. Let me, let, me, let me also tell you stupid motherfuckers something. Do you really think that the Kentucky players and the coach give a flying fuck that you two jackasses burn your clothing. 
by burning their UK merchandise. Do you think Keon Brooks and Terrence Clark and BJ Boston, do you think any of these guys give a flying fuck that you did that? Do you think that these guys are going to be like, well, you know what, we were going to go ahead and we were going to, uh, you know, uh, protest again and kneel before the national anthem, but you know, I I saw what um, I saw what Deputy Dewdog down in Lower County did, and wow, you know that really had an effect on me. So you know, we decided against it because man, we sure don't want to be losing our fans and burning our jerseys and burning our our merchant or burning our T-shirts and stuff. So we decided that we were just going to go ahead and just shut up and dribble because, gosh, golly, we 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 can't have. We can't have, uh, you know, these guys go ahead and do what they were doing. Do, do you really think, you stupid motherfuckers, do you really think that was the case? Unbelievable. Some people just, just tighten my jaws sometimes. So, again, at least the one guy would like the remaining shirts will go to the people, will go to people in need or the homeless shelter. Why, why are you going to be doing that anyway? Give it to them regardless. You're going to burn your stuff. Hey, look, man, if you want to, don't want to wear your merchandise, that's fine that you live in America. There's no law saying that uh, you have to support these guys and wear their merchandise. I get it. So, you know, if you want to go, if you want to go that route and make yourself look stupid by burning your shit on, on uh, social media, or you want to go out there and, you know, express your displeasure about an athlete or a team or a coach allowing players to go ahead and exercise their First Amendment rights. If you want to go ahead and do that bullshit, fine. No one's going to arrest you for it. But damn, they'll sit there and talk about, yeah, I'm Mr. Super American. I'm Captain America over here. And you're doing some stupid shit like that when there's many people in need who could use the clothing that you're burning, stupid. So, yeah, Laurel County sits near the Tennessee border. has a population of roughly 60,000 people. Now, at the census of 2010, Laurel County was 97% white. Uh, 0.3% black, or 0.7% black, and 0.3% Native American. So the overwhelming major- majority of Lowell County is white, which, you know, that kind of uh, answers a few questions. The medium income for a household in the county, 27000 with the medium for a family, um, the family medium with 31000 Males had a medium income of 27000 versus 19000 for females. And about 17 or 18% of families and 21% of the population were below the poverty line, including 28 or 29% of those under the age of 18 and 20% of those age 65 or over. So looks to me, if I'm taking a look at the demographics and I'm taking a look at the medium income and I'm taking a look at the poverty line, Lowell County is the county of poor white trash. So there you go. So surprise, surprise. They would be stupid enough to be sitting there still under the delusionment that, yeah, kneeling, black athletes kneeling is a sign of disrespect of the military and the American flag. Mm-hmm. Surprise, surprise that they would feel that way. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. The Knox County Fiscal Court also staged a protest of the basketball team for kneeling on Saturday against Florida. Signed, they signed a unanimous resolution demanding that taxpayer funds allocated to the University of Kentucky be used elsewhere. This is what Judge Executive Mike Mitchell told the Times-Tribune. The University of Kentucky received millions and millions of dollars every year of hard-working Kentucky taxpayer money, taxpayers' money. I think 
they need to be held accountable for their actions if they can't manage it no better than that. What 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 are you what are you what are you talking about? What the fuck are you talking about? Do, do you realize how important it is for not only the Kentucky basketball team, but the Kentucky football team and other sports in general, but especially if we're speaking about a region like Kentucky, do you, do you know how important it is for the University of Kentucky basketball team to be relevant, to be good, to be dominant? Do you, do you know how important it is to that university? You, you do realize, or maybe you don't, that when a, when a team of importance in the community, in, in, in a city like that, is good and it's rocking and it's rolling. Like take for instance when Kentucky is, you know, ranked high in the country and the basketball team and the Rupp Arena is sold out and they're getting on ESPN and they're getting on CBS and they're making the tournament and they're doing all these type of things. Do you know how much of a positive that is for the University of Kentucky, the school itself? Do you realize how much more financially advantage they are when the Kentucky basketball team is rolling and doing well? Do you know how well enrollment goes up when the Kentucky basketball team is doing well? Do you realize how important that is? Do you realize if the University of Kentucky in Lexington, Kentucky, do you realize if that university is strong, if that university is bringing in money, if that university is healthy, how it helps the area, how it helps the community, how it helps the city. And if Lexington, Kentucky is going strong and if Lexington, Kentucky is doing well financially and doing well because of the University of Kentucky, mainly because of the University of the basketball team, do you know how that spreads outside of Lexington and helps the entire state of Kentucky? Do you realize that? Do you understand that? I don't know if you do or not because you wouldn't have made such a stupid decision to say that the University of Kentucky needs to allocate the funds of the taxpayer. Because I'm guessing that in Lexington, Kentucky, one of the main industrial, one of the main financial uh, assets of that city or of that town, whatever Lexington, Kentucky you want to talk about, is the university. I'm quite sure the university plays a big role in the health of not only that city, but the entire state. So why in the name of holy hell would you take taxpayers' funds away from that university? Where are you going to put them else into? And how is that going to help the university, which in turn is going to help the entire community, which in turn is going to help the entire fucking state, you idiot? How, how in the hell does that work? Because those guys are exercising the First Amendment to kneel? When a couple of you jackasses who lived in that state are already arrested for the nonsense that you caused down in D.C. Uh, Wednesday? <laughs> Mr. McConnell was elected from that state. Again, was re-elected. Shows you the intelligent level of the folks in Kentucky. Not all. Not all. Not all. Not all. But enough. So Knox County, another county of great diversity and high intelligence, Knox County has a population of around 30,000 people and also sits near the Tennessee border. All right. The census of 2000, the population there was 31,795 people. Don't think that uh, it's gained too much over the last uh, 20 years. The racial makeup of the county is 98% white, 0.8% black, and 0.25% Native American. Mm Mm-hmm. The medium income for a house in the county was 18000 and the medium income for a family was 23000 
Males had a medium income of 24000 versus 18000 for females. About 29% of families and 34% of the population were below the poverty line, including 42% of those under the age of 18 and 29% of those age 65 or over. Oh, it even gets, gets even better. The county has been strongly Republican since the Civil War. And the only Democrat to carry Knox County since then has been Lyndon Johnson's when he won everything humanly possible in 1964 for his presidential election. And Johnson, of course, was, you know, had that Southern drawl and he was from the, he was from Texas. So there was some, um, there was some, some familiarities there. So once again, we're taking a look at this median income. We're taking a look at the way they voted. We're taking a look at the poverty line. We're taking a look at the racial makeup, and we're coming to the conclusion that Knox County, poor, white, trash. Okay. Okay. And again, I'm quite sure that those Kentucky basketball players are wringing their hands about the idiots in Knox County who feel that the team is disrespecting the flag and disrespecting the military and disrespecting the country when they kneel during the national anthem. I wonder how many of those fucking idiots were saying the same tune on Wednesday when people were breaking into the Capitol and threatening the lives of their elected officials. Just wondering. Just wondering. Let me see. It doesn't stop there. Oh, Kentucky, you are just a... You are just a barrel of laughs this week. Kentucky Republican Senator President, he cried during the speech over UK players kneeling during the anthem. He cried. He shed tears right there on the Senate floor. Robert Stevers shed tears on the Senate floor Monday afternoon as he gave a speech responding to University of Kentucky basketball players kneeling during the national anthem over the weekend. So emotional. He was so torn. He expressed the hurt he felt as the parent of an active military member and the nephew of a Korean War combat veteran, both of whom he said are symbolized by the American flag. Now, Stivers did not specifically name Kentucky players, but said, quote, when a group of young men got out on the basketball court and kneeled, that's protected speech. Was it at the right place or the right time? That's debatable. No, no jackass. It wasn't debatable. When would you rather have them kneel? I mean, because after all, you know, for things to get changed in not just this society or this country, but any part of this world that we live in, any part of this planet that we live in, the only way that change is going to come if we have our oppressors feel uncomfortable. You see, if our oppressors feel comfortable, then less likely they are going to change things. So what we need to do, excuse me, what, what we need to do, I'm getting all choked up here. What we need to do is to go ahead and try to change this by making them feel uncomfortable to the point where they need to change it so they will not be uncomfortable anymore. That's the way things go, Robert. If you read a history book, Maybe you would find that out. We didn't become liberated from England because we didn't want them to feel uncomfortable. We didn't liberate from England because the founding fathers were afraid of making King George feel uncomfortable. Taxation without representation, man. Come on now. We became a free country because we were making the British feel uncomfortable. 
We weren't waiting around for those folks. Changes in this country, changes in this world don't come along because we want to make those who are oppressing us feel uncomfortable. Hey, Robert's feeling comfortable right now. Okay, let's talk about, uh, you know, what we can do about, you know, police not whipping our ass for no reason. Maybe we can now talk about, you know, the conditions in our communities to make them better because now Robert is feeling comfortable. Those idiots in Knox County, they're feeling comfortable. Those jackasses in Laurel, Laurel County, they're feeling comfortable. Now is a great time for us to go ahead and discuss these things. And I'm quite sure with them feeling comfortable about it, they'll be much more amicable to change their minds and change their opinions. <sighs> do, 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 do. He then read, this clown didn't read a letter, and he said that it was written by his uncle during the Korean War. Hmm. He said, people have died for this country. They have died to allow young men to go out on the floor and have the opportunity to play sports, and we speak their, and speak their mind. You know what else there, uh, Robert? You know what else people have died for? Black people, poor people, brown people, people of oppression. People have also died for the betterment of this country. People have died fighting the war of discrimination and oppression and segregation at home. And guess what? We didn't have to go over to, see black folks, if you take a look at the history, black folks didn't have to go over to another country. Black folks didn't have to go to Korea. Black folks didn't have to go to Vietnam. Black folks didn't have to go over to Germany to be, uh, to be killed in war and in battle. No problem, you had white folks, they had white Americans doing that right here. I mean, shit, back in the 50s and the 60s, if you lived in Alabama, if you lived in Mississippi, if you lived in Louisiana, if you lived in Texas, if you lived in New York City, if you lived in Washington, D.C., if you lived in Virginia, if you lived anywhere in this country, and if you were black and you wanted to get lynched or you wanted to get killed or you wanted to get murdered by a white person, it was very simple. You go ahead and you might, you know, say hello to a white woman or you might go ahead and might move into a white neighborhood or you might try to go ahead and try to get into a white uh, high school or a white college or a white university shit there are many ways black folks could be murdered by white folks trying to better this country than to go overseas and fight for a right or fight for someone else to fight for another country didn't have to do that if you were black so yeah robert guess what just as much as your grandfather and just as much as your relatives went over to a war to fight for this country and risk their lives black folks didn't have to do that we risked our lives every fucking day that we wake up to try to make this country better. So if anybody has the right to dictate when it's right to kneel, when it's right to protest, when the right time it is to protest, damn sure ain't gonna be white folks. Period. History tells us, no, white folks, you don't get to call this one. You don't get to tell us exactly when we should be able to protest. That's not debatable, Robert. That's not debatable, those jackasses in Laurel County. Nope, nope, wrong, sorry. We get to go ahead and we get to decide when we shall go ahead and protest, when we shall express our feelings and thoughts about the way that we're treated in this country, the way we've been treated in this country for 200 years, for 300 years, for over 400 fucking years. We get to, we get to choose that, not you guys. You guys are the one doing the oppressing. We are the ones that are oppressed. So, sorry. I know you guys think that, you know, because you're the majority here that you get to call all the shots. Not on this one. Not on this one. Not on this one. <laughs> so, of course, Calipari, you know, who, you know, is the ultimate opportunist. Uh, you know, I'm quite, I'm quite sure he had his players back. 
I'm quite sure that he agreed with uh, you know the stuff that they were kneeling for. And I'm not, I'm not John Calipari isn't racist. I'm not calling John Calipari a racist. I'm not doing all. I'm not doing any of that. I'm not saying that uh, you know the fact that he was doing it for his guys. I'm not saying that that was you know. I'm not saying that that was bullshit. And I'm not saying that at all about Calipari. But I am saying that John Calipari is an opportunist. And I'm all. I'm also saying that John Calipari kind of understands why he needed to go ahead and do this. Because John Calipari relies on getting five-star, highly qualified basketball players who happen to be black. So if he ain't down with that, any type of hint that he ain't down with that is going to hurt his recruiting, which is going to hurt his stature as one of the elite basketball coaches in America. So this was kind of like a two-fold thing. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that, that Calipari was not sincere in wanting to kneel with the guys. But I think in a situation like this, you're talking about a 61-year-old white man who was a little bit uh, nervous, who was a little bit, how about this, uncomfortable doing that. So that's the reason why when all of this shit started going down and, you know, for black folks, the fact that, you know, a bunch of fucking poor white trash want to sit there and talk about we're going to burn your clothes and black folks shrug and say, go fuck yourselves. Why Calipari, a 61-year-old white man with a nice fat contract and a high standing within the uh, state of Kentucky, outside of Louisville, is going to go ahead and when he's, you know, told about what happened, he's going to hold a news conference on Wednesday and be like, well, I, I didn't know. I didn't know about it until 90 minutes before the game. And we've, we've talked about it since then, about, you know, you don't need to speak. You don't need to have action. How to, how do you bring people together? How do you make a difference? Not just how do you make a statement? I mean, they're 18-year-old kids. They're learning. They're, these are good kids. These are kids, and they're good kids. They've got good hearts. This political time, not probably not a real good time to do it. No, 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 John. No, 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 Cal. No, 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 no. LeBron, get on the phone. Nike, get on the phone. One of it, John Wall, get on the phone. Someone needs to talk to this guy. You need to talk to your old ball coach. No, 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 no. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. You see, John, you're feeling uncomfortable. That means it was the perfect time. So this bullshit about, I didn't know it, but 90 minutes before the game, I mean, they kind of sprung it up on me. Like if you, like 90 minutes was not enough time for you to make the, in your mind now, the correct decision to say, well, you know, let's not do it now. Let's, let's do it some other time. Let's do it some other ways. You had 90 minutes. I think this discussion was more important than the basketball game, John. I mean, you're talking about learning lessons. It would be a great learning lesson and you blew out Florida. So you really didn't need 90 minutes to prepare and get themselves ready because you beat Florida pretty good on Saturday. So I don't know what you're talking about. I have no idea what you're talking about. They're 18 years old. They're kids. These are good kids. They're ain't kids. These motherfuckers, can, they can vote, can't they? When you can vote, you're no longer a kid. You're a young person, but you're no longer a kid. You can go to jail as a, you can go to prison as an adult when you're 18. Now, you can do a lot of things when you're 18 that you can't do when you're 17. When you're 17, you're a kid. When you're 18, you're an adult. So, no, these are the old, these are kids. These are kids. They don't know any better. John, I'm quite sure that these kids, the background where they came from, they know a lot more about this shit than you do. A 61-year-old man who's been, quote-unquote, John Calipari, as we know John Calipari for a long time now. These kids know exactly why they're kneeling a lot better than you do. 
And this stuff about, well, you know, we'll do this and we'll take action and we don't need to advertise it and we don't need to go ahead and, 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 and bring it to light and we don't need to put a camera in front of it and everything. Bullshit, John. Everything you fucking do to help yourself and your program, you put a camera in front of it. Tell me the last time John Calipari didn't take an opportunity to get in front of a camera. Tell me the last fucking time that John Calipari didn't get uh, passed up on an opportunity to get in front of a camera or get in front of a microphone or to be on Sports Center or to be somewhere where he can't talk about himself, talk about his program and, and that type of thing. Tell me the last time John Calipari did that. I'll wait. Still waiting. Still waiting. Still waiting. You get my point. So, <sighs> what can I say, man? What can I say? <laughs> John, I tell you, man. Ah, the world is something else, boy. The world is something else. So, all right, I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> I'm done with this. I want to thank you very much for listening to the uh, podcast. Really do. And uh, I'll be back, talk about some NFL football. Anything happens. We've got the um, New Orleans Pelicans and the LA Lakers coming up after Luca and Giannis do their thing. So I'll be going ahead and talking about that. Listening to a bunch of Phil Henry podcasts and other podcasts and listen to my man, uh, Jay Fenning and all those other guys all got great podcasts. So, you know, enjoy yourself, enjoy your weekend, be smart, be safe, be good, be good to each other. Listen, learn, learn, listen. I'm going to be ending the program today appropriately since this is the day that Martin Luther King Jr. was born with the Black National Anthem, which I've said many times, if you're going to play the National Anthem, that you should go ahead and play the Black National Anthem. It ain't going to hurt you. It ain't going to kill you. We can sit up there and put our hands over our hearts and take our caps off of our heads and pledge allegiance to a flag and pledge allegiance to an anthem, which, uh, you know, for some folks really is on a sliding scale in terms of how much we should be pledging allegiance to the the, 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 the least that we could do in this country is to also go ahead and pay respects to the other half of the tracks and the other folks who uh, don't have it as good as the others. Still don't, even though we're working very hard for it. So the Black National Anthem is what I'm going to be going out with. So, yeah. Peace, love, harmony. Happy birthday, Dr. King music. <laughs> Oh